You're not the devil. Your practice. Are you so desperate to fight criminals that you lock yourself in to take them on one at a time? What chance does Gotham have when the good people do nothing? People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. Where were the other drugs going? I swear to God. I swear to me. I don't care if it's rival gangs, guardian angels, or the goddamn Salvation Army. Get them off the street. Bruce, this is Harvey Dent. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. You know that I'm telling the truth. I pulled him out. He was babbling about an underground army, a masked man called Bane. Why are you here? Maybe it's time we all stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day. Goodbye, Alfred. Let's not stand on ceremony here, Mr. Wayne. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do most of the time is, well, my official mantra is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but guys, let's cut the crap. I spend the majority of my time talking about comics, and so that's really the main reason why this series has shaped up the way that it has, because I wanted to spend some time talking about movies, and The reason for that is when I first started my show, I started it off talking a fair amount about movies, but then what ended up happening was I got, I don't want to say stage fright, but I got a little bit concerned that I would start being viewed as the movie podcast. And guys, there are so many movie podcasts out there, like really good ones, better than anything I could do. And so who wants to compete with something like that? You know, who... Who, who needs the pressure, I guess? So that's why for, a, I, I would say probably the majority, like something like 80, 85 or more percent of my uh, shows tend to be about comics. It's because people tend to be, I've noticed, overall less provincial about comics. So that just seemed to me to be the riper subject matter, I suppose. So that's really the point of it. But every now and then, I do like talking about movies. Now, the movie that I'm going to be talking about today is actually part of a loose trilogy that I've been that I've been working my way through. A subject that is I, I've come to understand. On the one hand, it means a lot to me, but on the other hand, it's a very complicated, very dicey subject for me. And so, well, I'm just going to stop talking around it. Basically, today's subject is going to be. The Dark Knight. Now, pretty much everything related to Chris Nolan and his Batman movies, as I say, it can be a little bit of a touchy subject. And so what I did not want is for this, is for these episodes to turn into 
a big scream fest where I just rant and rave like a lunatic and throw stuff across the room and gnash my teeth and howl at the moon and all that kind of fun stuff. Basically, what I wanted more than anything for these episodes is for it to be is for the discussion to be fair, to be reasonable and as above all to be respectable. And so there was only one man I could think of to involve in these shows that would that would give that would give basically the pedigree of respectability that I'm looking for. And so it is with great pleasure that I welcome back to the show for the first time since the last time, the man, the myth, the legend, the host and founder of the Quarterbin podcast, the co-host and co-founder of the Short Box Showcase, and the co-host and co-founder of one of my favorite podcasts that's going right now, Dorkness to Light. And it's not just a podcast, by the way, guys, it's also a blog, and you are only hurting yourself if you don't check it out. I welcome, back to the show, Professor Allen. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Gravitas, buddy. I've got your gravitas right here. <laughs> well, it's true, though. I mean, look, I think my reputation, at least at this point, among a lot of podcasters and podcast listeners is it is what it is. But people seem to really like you. And so the idea that I had was that by involving you in these shows, I make myself look better. So here we are. That's, you know, basically you're a means to an end, sir. I'm using you. <laughs> How are you? Been there I've been there before. <laughs> well, glad to be back. And I'm I'm happy to have you back because, you know, just to kind of peel back the curtain a tiny little bit before we get started, I've actually uh, done a little bit of a quality. At the time you and I record all of this, I've been doing just a tiny little bit of quality control on our Batman Begins episode. And I have to tell you, I think it turned out great. It was a lot of fun. Just just doing it was a lot of fun. That's what she said. And the fact is, you know, I I think that the discussion this time around, I honestly don't know where it's going to go. But my hope is that it's going to be at least as good as the Batman Begins show was. So there you have it. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. None whatsoever. Now, I guess in relation to Batman Begins, I'm going to put you first up on the hot seat. In relation to Batman Begins, it ended in a certain way. Basically, there's a little bit of a tease of the Joker there on the uh, rooftop of police headquarters. Batman says he'll look into it. He swoops off into the night, roll credits. And so everyone kind of figured that there would be some kind of a sequel to Batman Begins. And so before any news came out about uh, the Dark Knight or what this thing was shaping up to be, do you remember what your initial expectations for a sequel to Batman Begins might have been? Like, what what did you what were you expecting or what were you hoping for from Batman Begins Two? I'm probably going to give a pretty terrible answer, and that is that I try not to get too hyped up in what I think should happen next in a series or what I would do if I were the comic book writer, the filmmaker, the novelist, the TV producer. Right. Because for the most part, they are all better at it than I am. (laughs) And I have run into people who have gotten so locked in to what they want the next 
episode issue storyline to be that no matter how good it may or may not be since it since it didn't follow their preferred storyline which mm-hmm. may or may not have even been viable they're disappointed i see and so i will uh, thoroughly avoid the question huh. by saying i really enjoyed the first movie and if they were going to make a second i would be up for that <laughs> okay well that's fair enough and 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 clearly joker you know was coming that that seed was was planted and certainly mm-hmm. there are plenty of interesting takes on the Joker throughout the maybe at that point 65 or so year history of Batman mm-hmm. mm. that uh, and and of course in in live action and animated that uh, I certainly was not going to say, well, it has to be this version of the Joker because that's that way lies insanity, I think, as a fan. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you say it has to be a live action version of Mark Hamill, or I'm not going to accept it, or it has to be has to be somebody. What we need is another guy with a great mustache, Caesar Romero style, that we can paint over in white. That's my <laughs> Joker. I mean, the one of the geniuses of the Joker, and to some extent, DC is sort of playing on this in the as we record this current time frame, mm-hmm. is that there are multiple Jokers, multiple takes on that character. I see. And and I'll let uh, I'll, I'll I'll give the Nolans a chance to give me the Joker that they want to give me. All right, and well, then judge that. Fair enough. Well, I guess after Batman Begins, I mean, except for Professor Allen, I think a lot of people probably imagined what a sequel could be like. Now. Professor, keep this in mind. I wasn't actually expecting this to happen, but what I realized was that Nolan could have tamped the realism down at least a little bit in a sequel to Batman Begins and maybe shifted the tone in a bit more of a comic booky type of direction. And so I thought this could have somewhat mirrored what happened in the comics where year one showed Batman going up against mobsters and the like, while the long Halloween, and I would say to a greater extent, the dark, uh, a dark victory gave us more of a transition from the mafia in pinstripe suits to supervillains and garish costumes. And so sure. really before anything was really known for sure about what this sequel was going to be, I thought a more kind of Jeff Loeb slash Tim sale direction for a Batman begin sequel could actually be kind of interesting. Now, clearly no one's not the guy to do that. I just thought it, could have been interesting. I mean, like in retrospect, just imagine a world where he'd left the franchise after doing Batman Begins. He just says, okay, guys, I had a great time doing this. Lots of fun. Best of luck in the future because I want to do this other stuff over here. And so what might have been? And so I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those things that's kind of interesting to think about. It doesn't get you anywhere. It's kind of like right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like riding a, a stationary bicycle in that way. It's a pain in the ass, and it doesn't get you anywhere. But so, um, but one of the things, though, that as The Dark Knight as a film was kind of shaping up, this is not a completely new thing in the world of filmmaking, but it was nevertheless somewhat pioneering, at least at that time, kind of. 
is there was a viral marketing campaign at work for The Dark Knight as it was in production, and God knows as the release date neared. Now, guys, I just want to just put this out on Front Street. I do not speak for the professor when I say that I got very sick of the phrase viral marketing after about the second month of this (laughs) freaking viral marketing campaign. Now, do you have better memories of it than I do? Well, I I enjoyed the campaign, and unfortunately, I do use the terminology regularly in marketing classes. So <laughs> yeah, well, you, maybe I've become as you may, must. maybe I've become immune to it to the to the uh, annoyance of it. And you know, in in the world of you know online, there are many many versions and takes of the first, the first, the first. Probably the Blair Witch Project would probably be the first yes. to, su- to successfully. But I certainly think The Dark Knight was the first maybe major motion picture, mm-hmm. big budget motion picture that at least I can remember effectively using Right. the online viral marketing <laughs> and, and having it be pretty successful. Well, and – you know, this isn't one of those things that I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but one question I, I have in my notes is that I guess in terms of cost and expense, how does a viral marketing campaign measure up to a conventional marketing campaign? Again, not so much in terms of like brand awareness, but in terms of advertising dollars spent, you know, like or do you know anything about like the differentials between the two? Yeah, theoretically, it's supposed to be less. And I mean, the, old, the joke nowadays is that you can tell if a company has no idea about viral marketing is when they bring in a firm and hire them to do viral marketing. It's like we want you to do we we want you to make a video that's going to go viral. That's sort of prima facie evidence that they don't know what it means to go viral mm. because there is. There, there is an uncontrollable aspect to it, right? And sort of the, you're you're depending on social media to carry forth this message, and you're also depending on them to treat it positively, as we have seen with celebrities or politicians or whoever who say, "I'm going to go on Twitter now and ask me anything," and of course, you know what you get are. You know, terrible, horrible questions or what, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, hashtags that are the exact opposite of what the person intends, you know, that that I mean, in a sense that the 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 one of the reasons that the word viral does somewhat apply is that it is out of the company's control. So there is a, a weird you're trusting in your fans or you're trusting in in. I mean, you can attempt to hire some people to get the ball rolling in social media, but you are trusting for people outside your control and outside of your uh, outside of your payroll mm-hmm. to carry forth the marketing. So mm-hmm. theoretically, it's much much cheaper, but the success rate is is pretty slim. Well, and and what I've noticed. Is that there are exceptions to this, yes. But what I've noticed is that there's a strange 
chemistry that takes place with a lot of viral marketing campaigns where it's like you remember the campaign but damned if you can remember what exactly it was supposed to be supporting. And so in a weird kind of way, it's like it's caught up with TV. We're like a really memorable commercial. It's like you remember the commercial, but you don't remember what exactly it was advertising, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the, the example that I used way back in an early episode of my show was this uh, commercial where a woman – and it was an urban legend – but uh, a woman gets into a car and she uh, basically lets off a butt bomb and really just stinks the car up like you just wouldn't believe. Uh, her date gets in on the other side and then introduces her to the people that she never knew were sitting in the back seat the whole time and <laughs> saw, heard, and smelled the whole thing, you know? And that was, and because it was the 90s, that was for a pager commercial. Now, what the hell that has to do with pagers, I have no idea. But you know what? You remember that commercial. A lot of people do. And it's it, it's just it's kind of weird. Like, I guess as far as from the viral marketing end, there was a video <clears throat> that because it's viral marketing, it purported itself to be real that showed a a woman about to be run over in an intersection. Somebody teleported out of nowhere, grabbed her, teleported back over to a different part of the intersection that didn't have traffic bearing down on her. And it's like, hey, where did this was taken in Tokyo? Because, you know, Tokyo is so far away. And let's face it, <clears throat> that's not necessarily if something happens in Tokyo, it's not necessarily headline news here in the States. And so that's a, an interesting little viral marketing campaign because it's so difficult to fact check stuff like that. And you can really raise up the ambiguity of is this real or is it not? And in the process, raise up brand awareness for whatever it is that you're promoting. And. What, like I say, though, what I find the dark side to that is, you know, everybody remembers the viral marketing campaign for the Dark Knight, but th it, that's almost like that's the exception that proves the rule. More often, what people remember are the stunts. They don't necessarily remember the product. You know, does do you do you agree with that? Or the many many ones that we don't know of because they didn't take off. Right. The hundreds or thousands of viral marketing campaigns that died on the vine, which I'm pretty sure is a mixed metaphor of some kind. <laughs> the ones that didn't go anywhere because they didn't catch on. All right. <clears throat> and that actually, that I didn't even think of. But yeah, no one's qualified to say how many of those there are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, so I guess to, to get down to brass tacks with just your initial thoughts, you're coming out of the movie theater, you've just seen it for the first time, I guess, what were your initial impressions of the movie now? You've gotten away from the trailers and all that other fun stuff. By the way, there were some amazing trailers. Uh, for the, Like, whether you love this movie or hate it, you have, you have to give it give it up to the marketing department that they, they put together some very well-done trailers that give you the flavor of the movie. But they, especially in retrospect, they really don't spoil too much of anything about the movie itself. But... Anyway, coming and, out of the – You know, it, it was – I mean we have to mention the death of Heath Ledger and how – that which yes. is what, about six months before the, this this came out? Yeah, something like and that. And so that, you know, that changed a lot of their marketing and that changed I think a lot of their plans. And you know, that certainly – that certainly brought notoriety to the movie. I mean, the movie was going to be a big hit anyway. Yes. But we can't we we can't get around the fact that that brought 
additional attention to the movie Indeed. as if it needed it right or and 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 probably some additional eyeballs or fannies and seats um, for the movie yeah and so but but that i mean that did and and to give wb credit they did change their marketing you know they pulled a lot of that why so serious marketing and sort of went a little more traditional which may have been the plan all along uh, as as the movie approached but certainly in in the wake of his death they sort of went to a little more understated traditional uh, right. brand of marketing and um now coming out of the movie theater for the first time do you remember what your initial impressions of it were assuming you even saw it in movie theaters do you remember what your initial impressions yes, were yes i did uh, i i thought it was great and um And as with with many things, I couldn't wait for Emily and her buddies to see it, so I could gush with her over it. Ah, <laughs> uh, which, and so uh, I, they must have seen it the week later or something. And uh, I probably saw it twice in the theater, and, and both times thought this is really really good, <laughs> which, which which is different. This is where I get a little pedantic and a little uh, academic, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That's different than I liked it a lot. I try to separate or I differentiate between liking something and, re- and noting the quality of something. Ah. I, I, I enjoyed this a lot, and I also think it's really, really good. I'm, I'm, I think I'm sophisticated enough to realize that I like a lot of junk sometimes. <laughs> and there's also stuff that's really good that I, I, I know this is really good book I'm reading, movie I'm watching, whatever it is. And it's just not working for me. Fair enough. Well, but I think this I think this for me hit hit both of those. I liked it and I thought it was really good. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. The. Uh, I've got like a like fond I guess a fond memory because it's really only one night, but I've got a really fond memory of seeing this at midnight. And basically what happened was a friend of mine, he and I, we used to live for all of the summer movies because that was our time in the sun, you know, and there would be all of these movies that were coming out. We'd just seen Hellboy 2 uh, like a week or two before this movie came out. And, you know, that that was fun. We'd seen Iron Man together. You know, that was fun. And, <clears throat> you know, just overall, you know, this I mean, the summer of 2008 was, you know, I, I think history is going to and it may be doing so already. But that was Crystal Skull, not with or at least the reception of Crystal Skull, notwithstanding. That was a pretty strong summer in terms of just the amount of stuff that was coming out, you know, but. Specifically, the night that we saw The Dark Knight, we went to – well, first we picked up our tickets, and then we went to Barnes & Noble just to kill time and just kind of goof around. And I've always found it kind of telling that we went to Barnes & Noble as opposed to, say, Toys R Us or Out to Eat you know, or or, our LCS. (laughs) We went to a bookstore. (laughs) So (laughs) – but while I was there – what happened was there was this girl who was browsing around the uh, the trade paperback section, and 
this is going to be a long story in case that's not clear. Um, there's this girl who was browsing around the trade paperback section and she was just getting into the flash. And so I, I don't really know why, but she asked me, you know, well, do you know anything about the flash or, or, you know, what should I, what specifically should I be looking for in all this? And so, um, you know, talked to her a little bit and, you know, it came out that, in, in terms of like the battle of the flashes, she definitely was a Wally girl through and through. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, you know, for Wally, what I'd recommend is checking out, you know, this story, this one, this one, this one, and this one. And, and they didn't have all of those trades on hand present and ready to go. And so I said, I, well, I can make you a list or something if you want. And so like she held out her hand so that I could, you know, write these all this stuff on her hand and everything. And so I originally just didn't really think a whole lot about it. I just wrote it all on there in a, in a marker. And, and I, and then, you know, it, she asked, you know, what my plans were for like the rest of the evening. I said, ah, well, me and a friend of mine, we're going to go see the dark Knight." And she kind of made, it, it was weird. She said, she, because she said that she wanted to see that, but it's like, she made this face that kind of said that she actually doesn't want to see this. So it just sort of made me wonder about that. And so uh, so I thought, well, you know, that's kind of interesting. Anyways, uh, see ya. And, you know, we left. And so, you know, the, the entire way to the movie theater, uh, you know, my friend is just griping at me. He's complaining. He said, you know, dude, why didn't you get her phone number or something like that? I mean, she seems like she kind of liked you. So and she seemed kind of cute. So why didn't you do it? And. I didn't have a good answer. I just, I guess I wasn't thinking about it. I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I, it just didn't occur to me. Right. And, and honestly, I found it kind of hard to believe that's what, you know, cause that's, that, that, that's a strange thing. You know, I mean, I found all of that a little hard to believe what you just go up to a total stranger like that and you just start talking. No, <laughs> she was interested in the flash, not me. I, I can assure you. <laughs> and so we get up to the movie theater and we're waiting in line. And then that same fucking girl shows up. And so I kind of had to question all of that. So anyway, I have no idea what she wanted, but I didn't really talk to her. So I don't know. Maybe it was a missed opportunity. We'll never know. So waiting in line and there was a kind of a funny moment where they started seating people like to something. I think it was like two hours before the movie actually starts and being as it's a midnight movie, I mean, you can just imagine the way that a lot of people are dressed. You know, you've got a lot of Jokers, a lot of Batman, a lot of Harleys, like Harley Quinns, and even a couple of Riddlers, uh, for some reason, running around. And, you know, it, it, just in terms of anticipation, you know, this is one of the most high-energy midnight premieres that I've ever been to. I mean... This had the anticipation for this movie was so big and so strong that, you know, people were just dying to see this thing. Right. And so as you know, like I say, they, there came a point when they started letting us in. And so this this other girl who happened to be sitting behind me and my friend in the line, she said, are they letting us in now? You know, because all of these people are just starting to file into the movie theater. And so I was kind of a smart ass back in those days. And so I said, well, they're letting us into the movie theater. We need you to stay here and just keep an eye on the line. And she <laughs> even say 
you were a smartass back in those days? Yeah. Well, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I, I was kind of a smartass back then. So, and she even started to put her stuff back down <laughs> to wait in the line <laughs> that is now breaking up. <laughs> and so I just I felt really guilty about it. So there was a temptation to just kind of leave her there. But then I thought, well, that's just cruel. <laughs> So no, I, I said no. I'm just I'm just kidding. Come on, you're probably going to lose your because they didn't really do assigned seats back then. So you pretty much have to get in there and grab what you can. So and then after this, I promise I will get into like the actual movie. But you know, just the it's like just talking about my first time seeing this movie is inseparable. I'm not trying to go like Harry Knowles here or anything, but my first time seeing this movie is kind of inseparable from the occasion of seeing it. You know, the stuff that was going on. Because there was a lot of weird shit that was going on, obviously. And so the thing, though, one of the things that like really stood out was there was this guy that was dressed up in like full Joker gear, which by itself, that's not all that unusual. What was kind of unusual, number one, he had this weird sort of catchphrase where I'm going to have to get a little kind of graphic here for just a minute, you know, a little bit of potty humor, but... He would hold his hands like down by his crotch, just kind of jiggle his fingers around and then say, see the bees, see them, see the bees. And in terms of like maturity, well, that maybe has no place on this episode, but that was part of seeing this, this movie. But the other thing was he was, I didn't realize it at the time because most of us hadn't really seen the movie, but he was like giving Joker lines like from the movie. And I don't mean stuff that was in the trailer. I mean, like stuff that's in the movie that never showed up in trailers. And it just, you know, like how, who was this guy that he was able to see the movie like ahead of time like that? I mean, the only thing I can figure is he had a friend who worked at a movie theater or something like that. And that's how he managed it. But I don't, I don't know. But, you know, I just, some of his comments were just outlandish enough to be memorable. But then when you hear that exact same line in the movie, now it starts to make sense. And the only thing you can figure is he had to have seen it somehow before anyone else. And so how did he do that? So, but anyway, um, coming out of this thing, it's like, it became very apparent to me. I guess the message didn't really soak in when I saw Batman Begins. I guess I was outside taking a leak or something like that when this big announcement came down. But having seen The Dark Knight, I realized that Chris Nolan is making a trilogy. You know, and what I guess I was expecting was that it was going to be more of like a sustained series of films where maybe he doesn't direct all of them. He may leave after a while, but he's going to at least get the ball rolling and then other filmmakers can come in and do their thing. And it's just going to continue on and on and on and on, you know, and having seen The Dark Knight coming out of it, what I realized is that's not true. The movies that... Chris Nolan is making this is going to be a trilogy and what we just saw was the middle act and it was done in the style very much of a crime drama and so it's like on the one hand you know I, I kind of have stylistic disagreements with Chris Nolan at least in terms of some of his creative decisions but in terms of just like the weight and power of the movie like the way that you feel at the end of that thing whenever you saw Batman basic you saw the rise of Batman in Batman Begins, and now you saw his fall in The Dark Knight. And it's not even necessarily a fall that he really deserved, necessarily, but he fell nevertheless. And 
he kind of threw himself upon his own sword, and that was really the only way to take down, let's face it, a terrorist, one of the most dangerous terrorists that he was... I mean, it's up for up for debate. You know, who's the bigger threat to Gotham City? You know, Ra's al Ghul or the Joker? But definitely the Joker is nothing to mess around with. And what it took to defeat the Joker, he couldn't even really defeat him. He could only take his victory away from him. And that, and I'm not trying to get too far ahead of the discussion, but only, but just in terms of taking his victory away in that, He's not going to allow Harvey Dent's reputation to be destroyed. Batman sacrificed his own reputation and possibly his own freedom to make that happen. And it was a hell of a way to to end the movie. And the, the expression goes that in a trilogy or any kind of three-act uh, type of story, the middle chapter is usually going to be the most interesting just because of the fact that introducing the characters this has been done but it's not the middle movie's job to finish the story that's the third movie's job so the second movie or the second act or whatever it can do anything and go anywhere and because of that you know you look back at things like the empire strikes back as probably the best example that most people can think of in terms of a story that went in some completely unexpected directions and I thought it, it was it was ballsy, and it, it really took a long time to get my head around it. So I've blabbered on long enough, so I'm just going to give you the I – mean, I'm giving you back the soapbox. And uh, similar to Empire, they both end on – they both end on downers. That's for sure. No question. Um, so does The Two Towers, but that was an adaptation, so that wouldn't have been a surprise necessarily. But I certainly think it was a surprise – how 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 this one ended because we don't usually put our even through the early 2000s we didn't necessarily put our comic book characters through this kind of ringer or at least through the point where they're hated and despised and etc et and and you know there there is often a sense of the self-sacrificial yes. in in com in in comic book. I mean, in, in any heroic type of fiction, that's part of the definition of heroism. But to take on the scapegoat role, willingly, that, that's pretty unique. Yeah, that is pretty different. And and certainly, uh, I, I I can't say this authoritatively, but I imagine quite a departure from any Batman story that we had read up to that point. Yeah. But head, but heading in that direction, to be willingly despised, I thought was a really uh, just a thought-provoking and interesting way to end the flick. Agreed. So, are you ready to get into the, uh, I guess the the plot synopsis, and then we can give our comments as we go. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, for those of you who are following along at home, I really don't recommend following along in your car because – because. so basically what the good professor and I are, are going to do is basically go through the, the plot summary of The Dark Knight on Wikipedia and 
not necessarily word by word, but just kind of give our our impressions and thoughts on the rewatch of this movie recently based on what we're seeing kind of in nuggets on on the Wikipedia page. So into the synopsis we go. A gang of criminals rob a Gotham City mob bank, double-crossing and murdering each other until there's only one left. The Joker. Who escapes with the money? So to put a... Uh, uh, a pin in the plot synopsis. Basically, that's about the first five or so minutes of the movie, five or six minutes. And from the outset, you know, one of the things that kind of needs to be said, I wasn't necessarily asking for this going into the film, you understand. But one of the things that I was keenly aware of is that whenever you do these huge, big budget, summer blockbuster superhero films, is that certain things, certain tropes from the comics, probably through the best of intentions, typically get left by the wayside. And one of the things that tends to get forgotten about in these movies is the fact that, yes, these people are supervillains. That's true. And yes, they want to destroy the city. That's kind of a plot standby. But when you boil all that stuff away, these people are criminals. They commit crimes. And you don't really see as much of that whenever you you watch these movies. I mean, honestly, from the last franchise, the only time I can think of where you saw supervillains committing crimes was the that rash of robberies that the that the Riddler in Two-Face embarked upon in Batman Forever. And even that was just sort of like a passing thing. It only went on for like maybe a minute or two of the movie. And it's really just a means to an end. And Edward Nigma needed funding to build his brainwave device, and so they stole the money. Other than that, there's a very strong argument that you would never have seen them actually commit crimes and do burglaries and all that kind of stuff in the movie. But this movie starts off on a very powerful mission statement that, yeah, the Joker, he is the Joker, but he's also a criminal. And it starts off with him committing a crime. And I thought that was... uh, just like a remarkably, when you think about it, kind of oddly original way to kick off the movie. What do you think? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's a great scene, and there are a lot of individual moments that are would be would be worth noting. I thought the scene where the bank official comes out of his office and starts blowing away the bad guys. Yes. And, and you quickly realize, oh, this is the mob bank that he's robbing. Right. And laying the groundwork for a Joker versus the mob mentality. That, oh, okay. Now that's that's interesting. Yeah. And the I, – I, it's just such an original idea. And – the thing is, I mean, I think it would be good just the way it is. You, you wouldn't have to change a thing. I think it would still be good. But I think one of the things that kind of puts it over the top is not so much the Joker's gang. I mean, they're just kind of there to die. But the the bank official, who's obviously in the mob's pocket or is himself a mobster, it's never really developed. But this guy is clearly not on the side of the angels. We know that much. And... 
his performance over and against Heath Ledger's performance, you know, their little moment just before Joker drives off in the bus. To me, that's really what takes that that whole sequence to the next level because their performances, there's just a I don't want to say grit, but there's a uh I don't know, a, a reality to it. Well, uh, I- I like the fact you're not expecting this banker to be a tough guy. Then no. he comes out and, and shows himself to be a tough guy. And then he is, as the kids would say, pwned by the Joker. Yeah. And that just, I mean, that takes the Joker up a level. You know, he, he was, again, knocking down mob guys or mob linked guys in a mob bank. You know, this is not just walking into the local uh, savings alone on the corner and 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 grabbing their cash. Here you're grabbing uh, the cash that that he's grabbing. It's not going to be reimbursed by the FDIC. No, this this is going to be noticed by some really bad dudes. Yeah, these are guys you don't want to you don't want to upset. Definitely. Well, the. This actually, this next bit actually comes further along in my notes, but I, this is actually a pretty good pivot point into, I don't want to make a like too huge a deal out of this, but nevertheless, I would be remiss in not mentioning a fan theory that started making the rounds on Reddit about a year ago at the time that the professor and I are recording this. And in short, the theory goes a little something, something like this. The Joker is actually the hero of the Dark Knight, and that supposition is based on the fact that the the Joker arguably damages the mob in the Dark Knight even more than Batman does. And the cops that he murdered, these are all dirty cops. Now, yes, he did target Rachel and Harvey at one point in the movie, but the Redditor's way of looking at that is that... Rachel and Harvey represent known institutions of corruption in Gotham City. And so the Joker may not necessarily have known that Harvey and Rachel are actually the good guys, because traditionally the people who do their jobs in Gotham City are not on the side of the angels. And so, in short, if you just look at the Joker's actions, you're pretty hard-pressed to find all that many truly innocent victims in in all of his different scams and schemes and criminal enterprises. Now I'm not prepared to sign my name to that, <laughs> but it is an interesting theory nevertheless. So, uh, so professor, what are your thoughts on that? If any, I, th- I think what that speaks to is how pervasive the corruption in Gotham city is. That no matter who the Joker takes down, they're probably part of a corrupt institution mm-hmm. because they all are. Yeah. So if he goes after the DA's office, if he goes after the political side of the equation, law enforcement, the upstanding members of the business and banking community, no matter who he goes after, they're probably bad guys. That does not necessarily make him the hero, certainly not not intentional, but I think – I do think that speaks to just how corrupt Gotham is. Fair enough. Well, getting back which, into... Which hmm? I think is what the Nolans were going for. 
Yeah, I, of I, just I, how again pervasive is just the word that keeps coming to mind. Uh, how how underlying that evil corruption uh, is within Gotham. I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> now, getting back into the synopsis, it says Batman, District Attorney Harvey Dent and Lieutenant Jim Gordon form an alliance to rid Gotham of organized crime. Actually, you know what? This synopsis is a bit out of sequence, but whatever. We'll just tackle that right here. Basically, there's this famous scene on the rooftop where Harvey Dent fires off the bat signal and pretty much summons uh, Batman there so that he can enlist Batman's help with, among other things recapturing Lau, who's, in, in effect, he's the accountant for the entire Gotham City mob. And so Jim Gordon ends up getting involved in that as well. And it somewhat parallels the scene from The Long Halloween, which itself didn't actually originate with The Long Halloween. It actually comes from Batman Annual Number 14. This is a story that uh, it, the title of it is Eye of the Beholder, and it basically features a rooftop meeting at night between Batman, Gordon, and Dent, where they basically hatch their plans on not so much taking down one specific person, but basically how Batman can do his job better. And But the uh, apparently, the I, I guess the genius of that idea inspired Jeff Loeb and that in turn seems to have inspired Chris Nolan. So in effect, this is a very influential moment. And this is, I mean, on the one hand, I don't want to dwell on this too much because this isn't really a major part of the movie in the grand scheme of things, but it does need to be said that the forces of good such as they are in Gotham city Number one, they know what they're up against. And number two, for the first time, they're actually endeavoring now to pool their resources, pool their efforts, and create a joint effort to take down the mob, take down organized crime. And so on the one hand, I mean, this there's a sense in which a scene that's as functional as this one kind of defies rational criticism, but... On the other hand, it does have some history to it. Now, do you have anything you want to chip in on that? Other than the fact that you can get all of the all of the good guys in Gotham City together for a meeting, and it's a <laughs> you can hold that in a pretty small room. Yes, you can count them on one hand and still have fingers left over. <laughs> wow, that's a good point, actually. Anyway, uh, so. The synopsis says Bruce Wayne is impressed with Dent's idealism and offers to support his career. He believes that with Dent as Gotham's protector, he can give up being the Batman and lead a normal life with Rachel Dawes, even though she and Dent are dating. And this is a little bit more of an important subplot in The Dark Knight. So I'm going to have you lead, uh, lead off with this one. As I see it, there are really two issues here. Bruce wants to quit. Bruce wants Rachel. Have at it. Now, this is one difference between a movie trilogy in a 75-year-plus ongoing comic book soap opera. And that is that the lead character can 
at least uh, fantasize about giving it all up once he's turned the city around a little bit or put in place people who he thinks can. And that that is an interesting take on Batman's mission. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there's an argument that can be made that Batman's mission can never be fulfilled. And that his, his mission is to make sure that nobody ever goes through what he went through in the loss of his parents at the hands of violent crime. And if you're making that your goal, then it is impossible. You, you, you are setting yourself up for a situation from, from which you can never leave. You know, if that's the if that's the psychological point he has to get to, but that is a great story engine for seventy five plus years of comic books. Yeah, yes, it the is. The fact the fact that the mission never is ended, I think, in a sense, emotionally, it it's probably more realistic. It's a dangerous word mm-hmm. in yes. comic books or comic book movies. I'm I'm saying emotionally realistic. That that would that 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 could be the goal that if we get the mob influence out of these uh, structures that we we mentioned earlier he can step back and then let the good people attempt to rebuild the city well the the thing about all of this is this sometimes in life what happens is you kind of stumble across uh, a character moment or something like that, that it leads you on a thought process that ultimately leads to you redefining your understanding of, of a character or a story or something like that. And it's happened thousands of times. I mean, you know, I could give you examples, but they're very boring. The point is that this was a little bit of a come to Jesus moment, at least for me, when it comes to Batman, in as much as to me, this exposed the maybe the crucial difference between Batman and Superman, apart from the obvious. And specifically that I guess from a psychological standpoint, Batman is a goal oriented thinker. He knows what he wants. And he has a basic idea of how to go about getting it. Now, putting aside whether or not that goal is or isn't attainable, and just between you, me, and the wall, let's face it, Batman set a pretty friggin' lofty goal for himself here. But whether or not it is or isn't attainable, that is, I think, his, his thinking behind it. That's his rationale. What he wants to do is basically create conditions whereby what he experienced isn't going to have to be experienced by anybody else. And I couldn't help but think that is a losing proposition. You know, you will never yes. achieve that. And then I started thinking about and, – and, and, and – in a lot of Jeff Loeb stories, that's even how it starts off. I made a promise on the grave of my parents that I would have aven- not avenge, or like I would avenge their murder and rid the city of the evil that took their life. And I'm, if, if that's not a hell of a goal, but you look at what Superman's mission statement is, 
a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. And what I realized is that Batman is a goal-oriented thinker. Superman is a system-oriented thinker. What he wants to do, it's not it, – it, it's something that's a little bit more nebulous. Basically, what he wants to do is lead mankind into a better tomorrow. And given, theoretically, infinite time, he's sooner or later going to be able to do that. And the day's going to come when, you know what, there's just nothing more for Superman to do on planet Earth. There's just nothing. And that, I think, is when the DC 1 million model kind of kicks in and Superman departs these pastures and goes elsewhere. And he's not necessarily thinking of it in terms of, you know, stamping out evil forevermore. Superman isn't – he's – he, he, he doesn't have a goal. He has a system. And his system is ultimately going to be what guarantees his success. Batman's goal is going to be what guarantees, if you just think about it rationally, his defeat. Or I think more likely, this is just my personal biography for Batman, you understand, but Batman, sooner or later, is going to wake up. You know, he's going to be in his late 30s or maybe even his late 40s. But he's going to have a realization that his parents loved him. They would never have wanted him to do what he's doing with his life. They would want him to be happy. So he would sell Wayne Manor. He'd, he'd give up being Batman. He'd move away from Gotham City. And he would just quietly retire. Maybe he'd get married. Maybe not. But he would seize his chance at happiness. That's how I see Batman's story ending. He's not the guy that's going to die in the line of duty. That's Spider-Man. Batman... Sooner or later, his day is going to come and he's going to realize he's he's done maybe not what he set out to do, but he's done a lot of good. And it's OK now for him to put down the dice and call it a day, I guess. I was uh, in, in another context talking about a, another story. I was recently discussing some of these missions that some of these heroes had. And you know, Wonder Woman's mission was to, you know, leaving Paradise Island was to, you know, bring peace to man's world. Yes. Which is a pretty, really hard goal. But it, but it was put on her from the outside. And in the case of the Spectre, we have the worse, <laughs> absolutely worse situation. Yeah. His goal given to him by the real God, mm -hmm. actual factual God, is to be the hand of wrath, judgment, justice, again, until all evil is wiped out of the earth. That's a pretty tough, that's a pretty hard mission. But at least Wonder Woman and the Spectre, similar to Superman, have time on their side. Yes. <laughs> As opposed to Batman, who has given himself a similarly impossible mission. But two things make it different. One, he's mortal. And two, he gave that mission to himself. You know, it, it, it wasn't even an outside force as Wonder Woman and the Spectre's missions came from outside of them. His impossible mission came from Inside, And I like your, shall we call it maybe headcanon, I like your notion that at some point, with some maturity perhaps, Batman 
will realize that his parents would want him that his parents if they were good parents yeah would want him to be happy not would want him to hold that that they would not hold him to this crazy promise that he made when he was emotional and immature that that simply they're better parents than that <laughs> well i'm not trying to i i don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here but to some degree or another, everybody has suffered loss in their lives. Yes, yes. And if you haven't yet, wait a while. Consider yourself lucky and wait a while, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, loss comes in all different all different forms, you know. But, you know, for a lot of years there, I mean, I kind of won the lottery and that, you know, my family went really like to almost two and a half decades Without serious illness, serious loss, serious death, anything like that. I mean, even our dogs were safe, it seemed. And so, but then one day that little, that veneer of security got pierced and, you know, a a family member uh, passed away. And then another one passed. And, you know, there came a point when, you know, it's actually starting to get very personal now. It's getting a little bit closer to home every time, you know. And now Batman lost big when he was a child. There's no denying that. But and, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm making light of that type of loss because I'd never do that. But having said that, there does come a point, And this is just psych, just psychology sort yes. of 101 where you reach a point of recovery. I mean, to the degree that you're ever going to fully recover from this, you've reached that point. And for a lot of people that actually does manifest itself as all or nearly all as a complete recovery or close to a complete recovery. And I guess to put it in simpler terms, you wake up one morning and guys, it just doesn't hurt so bad anymore. You know, it really doesn't. And, you know, on the one hand, you're aware of what you lost, what you've lost, and maybe there's going to be an ache, but it that you'll carry with you for the rest of your life. But you're not necessarily bleeding over it anymore. And Batman, as he's presented in comics, is perpetually bleeding over this loss. And what I kind you see, I, I like it and I don't like it about the Dark Knight, that this is a guy who's keenly aware of his limitations and he's set however impossible he has set a goal for himself and so in his mind if no place else there's a defined endpoint and he's actively working toward that and so basically what we're seeing is a there's an argument that this isn't really all that different from the batman that we're seeing in the comics because the minute the batman in the comics achieves that goal if I mean, like I say, put aside whether or not that's even humanly possible. Suppose that it is. The minute he achieves that goal, the Batman in the comics is going to make the exact same decision. The difference is the one in the movie is talking about it. But that's really the only big difference. And so – but like I say, I just I just wanted to throw all of that out there because it's definitely, I think, worth mentioning. Now, this is actually more of a – I guess a small note. But there was a casting decision. Uh 
that had to be made with this movie, it was basically a change from what we saw in Batman Begins, that the character of Rachel Dawes was, in effect, well, not the character, I suppose, but the actress was replaced. She was played by Katie Holmes in Batman Begins, and then here in The Dark Knight, she's played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Now, we can spend as much as much or as little time on this as you want, but I guess in terms of just performance, what are your thoughts on that? You know, the, the transition from, uh, from Katie Holmes to Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think that in terms of acting skill, mm-hmm. that it's an upgrade. And I say that not just on my own taste, <laughs> but just looking at, in Gyllenhaal's career over a range of roles, she's been nominated for an Oscar and an Emmy, Screen Actors Guild, Independent Spirits Spirit Awards, has won a Golden Globe, has been nominated for others. And then her career, Katie Holmes, has won two Razzies and been nominated for two others. Yeah. Now, Casey's also had some positive things um, as well. Um, I, th- I think Maggie Gyllenhaal is, is – a, a, a more skilled actress. Now you could argue that this particular role doesn't necessarily need the depths and uh, of you know, tremendous acting skill. But I think in that sense, it's an upgrade. And I think she's only, I, th- I think there's a, a one year age difference between the two actresses. Hmm. But I think that Maggie Gyllenhaal looks this isn't a bad thing. I think she looks older. I think she looks more mature. Mm-hmm. I think she looks more ready to go into the role and the position that Rachel Dawes has in the movie. Well, fair enough. I mean, I, I don't mean this to be disrespectful to either actress, but I, Rachel Dawes as a character always sort of just rolled off my back to begin with anyway. So which actress is playing her. It just seemed to me kind of trivial. Having said that, though, before The Dark Knight, the only movie that I'd seen Maggie Gyllenhaal in is Secretary. Mm-hmm. And I, I must... A, that is a crazy movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, look, I, I... But that is one of the Screen Actors Guild noms or, or one, of those, one of those nominations. Some of the critical acclaim was, was for that movie. Right. And her performance in it. And the not so much like her. I I got the it's been forever since I've seen that movie. But if, if I recall correctly, she's said to have some kind of mental illness in that movie, like her character has some sort of mental illness in that movie. And I don't mean that necessarily, but I got the impression somewhere along the line, you know, the whole uh, S&M type of thing that she was really like that. You know, and so for some reason, I don't know why, but I chalk it up to a brain fart or something. But I guess, number one, I forgot the fact that she is an actress, so she can put characters on and she can take them right back off. And the other thing was, even if she's like that in real life, that doesn't necessarily mean that Rachel Dawes is going to come out wearing, you know, the leather suits and the mask with the whip and all that stuff. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that's – but for some reason, it's like I just couldn't get my head around that. I was like, that – No, no. 
so in 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 terms of you know, major movies, mm-hmm. you know, this is by far oh, and Donnie Darko. highest profile. Yeah, yeah, that. But I, I, I think these are her most mainstream yeah. blockbuster roles, and you could certainly argue that Katie Holmes is probably a better choice for a mainstream movie. You know, you know could have been because Maggie Gyllenhaal tends to be associated, whether it's by choice or for whatever reason, with the independent, small-budget, quirkier movies. Right. Fair enough. I just wanted to toss that out there. One of the reasons, though, actually, before we move on, one of the reasons that I was willing to give Katie Holmes a day in court as Rachel Dawes was because of the fact that I'd seen that movie, uh, Pieces of April, where suffice it to say, Katie Holmes, she's not playing Joey Potter there. You know, that's not who that character is at all. And I went into that thing really only knowing her as Joey. And then here she is, and she's (laughs) this other thing entirely. And it was, it's it's a small, low-budget, independent... I think it was shot on not even with in the modern vocabulary of like what this means today, it was shot digitally back when you're using basically camcorders for something like that is how old that movie is. And it has a look, this is not the greatest movie that's ever been made, but there's a, there's a, I guess a grit to that, or there's a, it's a slice of life, I suppose. And a not necessarily savory one. And the entire time I was watching it, I, I don't remember ever thinking, holy shit, that's Joey, you know? And so that's one of the reasons why, to me, notwithstanding the fact that Rachel Dawes just never made much of an impression on me to begin with, I don't really see how one actress is superior to the other here. But, man, we... Do you, do you know, was there a behind-the-scenes? Was there a, a salary demand? Was there, do, do you know any of the backstory as to why, um, why the switch was made? Uh the way that I heard it, and we all know how reliable, you know, internet gossip is. Um, but the way that I heard it was that actually what the Wikipedia page says is Gyllenhaal took over the role from Katie Holmes, who played the part in Batman Begins. In August 2005, Holmes was reportedly planning to reprise the role, but she eventually turned it down to do Mad Money with Diane Keaton and Queen Latifah. Which, talk about decisions that will live in infamy. Yep. Uh, who's ever heard of Mad Monkey? Everybody's seen The Dark Knight. So, wow. Well, you know what? Whatever. I mean, look, I've, I've made bonehead decisions myself. <laughs> Never one that cost me this much money, but I've made bonehead decisions myself. So, huh. anyway. But yeah, that apparent, that's what Wikipedia says. So, I choose to believe that. So... Now, to – I don't even remember where we dropped off here. Okay. Um, but but uh, Yeah, here we are. So getting back into the synopsis here, it, it says, Mob bosses Sal Maroney, Gamble, and the Chechen – I love the Chechen, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mob bosses Sal Maroney, Gamble, and the Chechen hold a video conference with corrupt accountant Lau, who has taken their funds and fled to Hong Kong. The Joker interrupts, warns them that Batman is unhindered by the law – and offers to kill Batman in exchange for half of their money. Instead, Gamble puts a bounty 
on the Joker, but the Joker kills him. Inst- Actually, that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, Gamble puts a bounty on the Joker. We'll just drop off there. So basically the video conference scene, you know, with the uh, vanishing pencil. <laughs> You're up. Again, an- another one of those great scenes. And I think uh, not his uh, entrance into the movie, but uh, another great entrance into the scene for the Joker. Well, I really enjoy that scene. I've got a quibble with it and mm-hmm. I'm not sure how seriously you're going to take this, but, uh, nevertheless, my quibble with it is there's a, it, it, arguably this is a throwaway line, but the Joker says, I thought my jokes were bad. And he's basically speaking, just kind of put this in context. He's ridiculing, what Lau has just said, you know, um, it was words to the effect of, uh, I'm going to hide in China and I'm, I'm therefore out of, out of reach for American law enforcement. And then Joker comes in and says, I thought my jokes were bad. And then he goes on to make the point, Batman has no, uh, he has no jurisdiction. That means he's going to come after you. And to me, that's one of those lines that it shouldn't mean as much to me as it does, but this isn't a perfect world. And the fact is, the Joker, as I've always conceived him in my mind, he is psychologically incapable of saying that his own jokes are bad. You know, And that's not the point of the scene. The point of the scene, and even the point of that little bit of dialogue, is to turn the subject and make a different point. And I get that. But... The fact is, the Joker would never call his own jokes bad, and that it did give me a sinking feeling as I was sitting there in my movie theater seat, like, what the hell are we in for, you know? And I'm just going to shut up right now because I can already hear you tut-tut-tutting to, uh, <laughs> on the other end, so... Not at all, it. not at all. But I... Um, to me, what one thing that's interesting in that in that scene is the PG-13 nature of it. Yes that the guy gets a pencil run through his eye, into his brain. No blood, no fluids at all. He doesn't even scream. And obviously, if any of those things happen, we're we're pushing the R boundary. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's, to me, sort of one of the more interesting filmmaking choices. You know, it's a, it's a crazy scene, another scene that shows just how in charge of this moment, the Joker is. It, the, the depths that he's willing to to go to. Well, but they but they they keep it clean enough. <laughs> Again, yeah. in a in a purely movie making sense. Well, overall, it's actually kind of interesting how little actual blood and gore is anywhere to be found in this movie. There's a lot of violence. That is implied, but very little of it's ever shown. And and, and that's that that that's theoretically one of the PG thirteen versus R differences is is blood and gore as opposed to violence itself. You know, a violent, a bloodless violent act versus a bloody violent act. Yeah, and it's just and, it, and they were clearly going for the PG thirteen. Yeah, <laughs> they were so serious. If, if this if if this were made now. That would be blood gore uh, and and 
screaming and probably him grabbing his his eyes at spur. I mean, it, it would it 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 would look different today in a post Deadpool world, perhaps. I'm thinking, yeah, probably it would. This leads into something, though, and again, we're going out of sequence with my notes, but that seems to be the way that this <laughs> discussion seems to want to go. Batman, fundamentally, like we were saying a while ago, is he's a man on a mission, you know? However insane it may be, he's got a mission, and by golly, he's sticking to it. And he's got this almost fanatical devotion to order and justice, Whereas the Joker, especially as he's presented in The Dark Knight, is he could be seen as Batman's equal opposite. And arguably, that's why the Joker is always able to stay a few steps ahead of Batman, because he's the guy who's able to improvise. But the Joker's dedication to chaos and to destruction is absolute. Batman's mission is more important to him than his personal safety. And I think the same thing can be said of the joker he's not concerned with injury or death he's out to set a bunch of shit on fire and he doesn't care what it costs him on a personal level and to me the joker's defining trait has always been chaos he shows up and people start freaking out and that is it's personified actually a couple of times in this movie or exemplified i should say it's exemplified a few times in this movie But one of the first tastes of that that we get is actually right here where the Joker opens up his coat and you see his his entire inner lining for his coat is lined with grenades. And the Joker's actually got a string rigged up so that he can pull the pin on all of them simultaneously and blow that entire room to kingdom come himself in the process. And he doesn't come in there with a gun. He doesn't try to shoot him, uh, shoot him out. He doesn't bring a gang with him. His method of getting control over the room, it's done in a way, he's using lethal means to do it, but these are means that are lethal to him as well. And there is a weird, we've, we've mentioned terrorist aspect to, to uh, the Joker, and clearly there's some post 9-11 stuff happening in this movie as well. You know, the, the fact that the Joker is prepared to become a suicide bomber for his ideology is an interesting point. And that's oddly enough, I mean, we'll get into it a little bit more later on if you're comfortable with it, but uh, there is another political wrinkle going on here that we can revisit. And and, and also just on on that scene related to what you had said uh, earlier or what the one one theory on, on the movie you know, if this were, a, you know, if 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 Gordon had gotten wind that all of the mob bosses were going to be meeting in one place, and one cop says, "I tell you what, I'm going to go in, load it up, and I'm going to take them all down and me with them," he would be a hero. Yeah, I mean the the. To, to 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 such an extent that the GCPD probably wouldn't sanction it, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and an action that uh, that out there. Right. But in that moment, if the Joker, or if if the person with all the with the explosive vest and all the grenades, and and 
had sacrificed themselves to take down all of these uh, all of these bad guys that that would be a heroic moment yeah and the other thing is again like just on the fundamentals of what this scene is it's yet another instance of Heath Ledger damn near stealing the entire movie you know yes. he definitely stole this scene and now, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of people had their eye on his performance in this movie in a way that maybe they yes. wouldn't have otherwise. But yes. even whenever you take that into account, I mean, that only takes you so far. And then after that, what you're left with is this actor that tr truly nobody, nobody saw him coming. I mean, what I remember is that in terms of like big names that everyone was suggest, or not big names, but in terms of names that people were suggesting to play the Joker, since we all kind of figured that's who was going to be in the movie, you were getting a lot of stuff like uh, Christopher Eccleston, or you'd get Nathan Fillion just because it's a comic book movie. So damn it, somebody has to suggest him because <laughs> I, I really don't understand that. But whatever, it's his name. There, there was a point when it's almost like. Hollywood was not allowed to make a comic book movie without somebody suggesting Jim Caviezel be in it somehow. And it's like Nathan Fillion is now the new Jim Caviezel because he gets suggested for every friggin' thing. Anyway, it's kind of annoying, actually. But anyway, and Heath Ledger was this complete out of left field choice to play this character. But I don't personally know anybody. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I don't know anybody who would see that change if, if if they had the ability to who would replace him with somebody else which i think maybe is a testimony to how good a job he really did uh, what are your i mean i don't want to get too far afield with that but you know this is a good scene to kind of bring that up you know what are your thoughts you know there's one um idea that a director's first job is casting right and You know, given the uh, and and I think you know, one of the reason that really good directors are really good directors and really good uh, internet comment commenters are not directors is the vision to see a really good actor, a really talented actor, and you know, someone who may not have played this type of role before but having the vision to see them in it mm. and I you know I think certainly uh, Christopher Nolan gets the credit for going what we would think of as off script pretty much to uh, you know to go this direction with the Joker <laughs> but but to pick someone who had been a you know a critically acclaimed actor, right? Who, who who had done some popcorn movies, but had also done some critically acclaimed work. Well, I at least wanted to uh, uh, toss that out there. But I guess my closing, my sort of parting shot for this for this scene is there. There comes a point, like, and we're talking like the this is the tail end of the scene now. The Joker is walking backwards out of that kitchen that they've met in, and he kicks the the kitchen door open and lets himself out. And it hit me in that moment. It's like, I don't 
really want this scene to end. Like the first time I was watching it, I I kind of want this scene to keep to keep going. Let's play this thing out. And the thing is, they did play it out. That scene accomplished what it needed to accomplish, and it did so in a in a very cinema friendly, economical way. And so you have to end the scene. And I get that. But I mean, they say that it's the highest praise or the best compliment somebody can an audience member can give is give me more of that. I want more. And I could have I could have stood in another couple of minutes of the Joker just sitting there talking smack to the mob. I'm <laughs> I, now this is somewhat undermined by Michael J. White, who plays Gamble, who puts the bounty on the Joker. He, I don't, it's just as an actor, I've never really liked Michael J. White all that much. He has a way of sort of overacting and getting a little, I'm not talking like William Shatner levels of hammy or anything, but he does tend to overact a little bit. And he does in a weird kind of way. It's like he, it's almost like he undermines that scene, but the, any, anytime he's in danger of pushing it too far over the edge, it's like other actors are there to kind of bring some more respectability to it. And one of them, I think an unsung hero in all this is actually, and I probably should have checked this before starting in on this line of thinking, but the guy who plays uh, the Chechen, oh, his name is Richie Coster. There's something about all of his lines in this movie, the way, just the way that he, I guess his overall performance in this film I really enjoyed the Chechen, you know, and obviously there's Ledger too. I just, everybody basically, except for Gamble, is pretty much on their A game in that scene. I really dig it. Yeah. So, Agreed. anyway, Gamble, to get back into the summary, Gamble puts a bounty on the Joker, but the Joker kills him instead and takes over his gang. The mob. Actually, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Do you want to, do you have anything to say about the Joker killing Gamble? Because. On the one hand, we've talked so much already, but no. this is kind of a big scene, so however you want to do it. No? Okay. The mob ultimately decides to take the Joker up on his offer. Dent arrests the entire mob while Batman finds Lau in Hong Kong and brings him back to Gotham City to testify against them. Actually, we're going to put a pin back in the um, synopsis here. Basically, what we're seeing here is this sequence where Batman goes to, goes to Hong Kong uh, to capture Lau. To me, this is one of the most quintessentially Batman sequences that's ever been put on film. Now, it's, a, it's go ahead. It, it's again one of those great scenes in the movie, and we've had three, at least maybe four, in this section of the movie so far. I mean, this is this movie is getting off to a great start. Yeah, and 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 working its way into a great middle so far. Indeed, yeah, and. There's something, I don't know why, but it just seems totally Batman to me that, you know what, his first, last, and only concern is Gotham City. And if the only way he can protect Gotham City is to fly overseas to friggin' Hong Kong and kick some ass and then bring somebody back to Gotham City, guys, guess what he's going to do? And, 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 and who was the person who already knew this? The Joker. Yes. The Joker had commented that you think you're safe. Jurisdiction does not matter to this one. Not a bit. And it does not. No. And, you know, just this is an incredibly 
Well, I think it's a well, just overall, it's a well-written sequence, you know, made up of a bunch of different scenes. Mm -hmm. It's a very well, well-written sequence in my opinion, but it's just, it's, I don't care if you're talking about Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, the comic book Batman, just friggin' whoever, Batman would do this. He would, he he would go overseas. And this is one of those times when you take Batman out of his native habitat on the one hand. But on the other hand, he's still doing what Batman does and the reasons for which Batman would do them. And so it it completely adds up to me. And I just I, I adore this whole sequence. And this is also the debut of Batman's new outfit. Now, we can get as in depth on that as you want. But in short, he gets a new suit in this movie as compared to what he had in Batman Begins. Uh, that was more just sort of this bulky kind of bleh, rubber sort of outfit. And here he's got something that's a little sleeker and more streamlined and allows him greater agility and flexibility and speed. And so it also has the ability, um, the fringe benefit, I suppose, of being a new toy for the toy company. And let's face it, <laughs> they're kind of starved for new toys. And so I think, you know, something like this is kind of throwing them a bone. So Whatever you want to say about that, it's all you. I I, I like that they made the uh, costume change part of the plot. You know, they made it a plot point. Right. That uh, he needed to turn his head. It was too heavy. Things were so. You know, whatever the whatever the reason was for the movie to get something that looked different, toy, whatever, to make a visual improvement. Uh, they made it a point in the movie and, 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 and called it out. And conceptually, I like the idea that, especially for Batman, but just in general, that a hero's costume, I, I think, is always a work in process. It would have to be. That, yeah, that makes sense to me. Or, you know what? People are going to laugh. I know they're going to laugh when they hear this. But, I, guys, I ask that you hear me out. Before you start laughing at me, all right? My, like you were saying, you know, a, a hero is always going to refine his his suit, and I get that. And, you know, for most characters, I mean, I would exempt Superman for that from that in some ways because, honestly, what more is the there? Suit and, and the suit is a visual component of who he is, but it's not... He... <laughs> He doesn't, with the exception of the cape, I guess, he doesn't use the suit no. as a weapon or in defensively the way that uh, bullets and bracelets are or the way that, you know, cowls or, or you know, scallops on on gloves or gauntlets or other things could are part of who a particular character is. Agreed. But I think in, in Superman's case, it, it is mostly just – just for looks. Yeah, it, it truly is. <laughs> and it looks pretty great. Yeah, it does. And but I, I guess aside from sort of obvious stuff like that, to me, what stuff like this needs to do is in some way or another speak to character. Now, probably the best example that everybody can think of is Iron Man. There is a born exactly, tinkerer. Exactly. And he's always he's never going to be satisfied. He's always going to be improving, refining, perfecting. But I think there's a, a lot to be said. And again, it, it, you have to make sure you're dealing with the right character for this. 
but one of the best examples I've seen of a of a superhero constantly refining the outfit and just the overall appearance of it. It and again, it goes straight to character. Is it actually comes from my super ex girlfriend, where Uma Thurman plays a superhero by the name of G Girl, and I don't think she wears the same outfit, the same superhero outfit. I don't think she wears the same one twice in that movie. It's always something new. Now, there are certain design elements that never change. She's recognizably G-Girl the whole time. But she's still... Because of the fact that she... You can tell that in like deep down inside in her inner core, if you want to get... If you want to bend spoons on this a little bit, you know, she is a little bit of a fashionista. She pretends not to be for sake of her secret identity. But... You know, G-Girl is a little bit of a fashionista, and so she's always going to be changing up her outfit, uh, refining it, and coming up with something that looks better and fits whatever current fashions are at that time. And, yeah, that was just such an obvious and inspired way to go, specifically with that character. You couldn't do that for every character. But but my point is that Changing the outfit, it needs to, in some way or another, speak to character. It did in The Dark Knight. It does for Iron Man. And it did, in, of all things, this Uma Thurman movie that nobody remembers except me, because I kind of like it, is it, it fit with G-Girl, you know? And so, anyway, just want to throw that out there. So, you ready to get back into the uh, synopsis? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Joker threatens to keep killing people unless Batman reveals his identity, and he starts by murdering police commissioner. Uh, is this Gillian Loeb or Gillian Loeb? I would guess Gillian, but I thought so too. Okay, fine. Well, whatever. Police commissioner Loeb. Aha! Take that synopsis. And the judge presiding over the mob trial. The Joker also tries to kill Mayor Anthony Garcia, but Gordon sacrifices himself to stop the assassination. Dent then learns that Rachel is the next target. So we got a couple of things to work through there. There's this uh, montage, or not a montage, but it's it's sort of a bunch of different scenes of the Joker making plays against different people. And there's this moment where Commissioner Loeb and Judge What's-Her-Name both get killed. And then the Joker and, and his gang storm uh, the Wayne Penthouse to personally uh, uh, murder Harvey Dent, but Bruce manages to protect Harvey Dent. And then again, we get another one of the Joker's kind of scene-stealing moments whenever he has uh, first a brief encounter with Senator Patrick, uh, is it Leahy or Lehigh? I can never remember how to pronounce that. Leahy. Leahy, okay. And then out comes um, Rachel Dawes, and there's this, just kind of neat moment between it, it's just a it's not even a character moment it's just a good acting moment you know then batman swoop, uh, swoops onto the scene he beats the tar out of first the joker's gang and then somewhat the joker himself it ends in a stalemate where the joker drops rachel dawes out a window and this is maybe the first plot hole, or at least the first noticeable plot hole we get to in this movie. But before we get in the plot hole, I'm, what do you have to contribute to what I've said so far? Yeah, I, I like the idea that we see Rachel's courage mm-hmm. in staring down 
the Joker. Um, you know, she knows what's going on, what he's been doing, the reign of terror that that he's been perpetrating, mm-hmm. and just really uh, stares him down. I like it. And there's this kind of neat little sequence of events where Bruce, in his civvies, takes out one of the Joker's guards, disassembles his shotgun, and comes across what looks to be two attendees of his party in the middle of some sort of tryst. And it's kind of played for laughs where where Bruce lets himself into – it looks like this kind of super security pen- – what? Right, and into and his – what what they assume is the panic room. Yeah, and they also That's, assume they get to oh, come great. in. Oh, great. Oh, great. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> and what I like about that is that if you just watch the scene, it looks like Bruce's pulse isn't even really up all that much. I mean, he's it looks like he's perfectly calm throughout the whole thing. And he's just cool as a cucumber throughout – the whole and on the one hand, again, it just kind of defies rational criticism. I mean, it's there, and either you appreciate that or you don't. But at the same time, it's just it's an it, it's a good moment, and I didn't want to let it go without mentioning it. But then there comes a point where the where the Joker drops Rachel out a window, and then Batman catches her. And when you do these kinds of movies, what you're not really what the filmmaker at least doesn't really want you to ask is what happens after the scene cuts, you know, at the end of the scene when they've cut to something else. Well, what happened after that last scene? I mean, did the Joker and his crew just stay in the Wayne penthouse and look down at (laughs) Rachel and Batman? They're they're just laughing or did they make their, what the hell? I mean, you know, how do you escape at that point? (laughs) So I don't know. And, like I say, we're not really supposed to think about that too much, but the reason I'm not I'm not really willing to give the Dark Knight that kind of loophole is that hey, it's just a comic book. That logic works for the first four Batman movies, you know, the two by Tim Burton and the two by Joel Schumacher, because those are movies that really they don't try to be serious entertainment they want to be fun summer popcorn movies and so yeah you you got to let certain things slide just because of what these movies want to be but the dark knight maybe more than any other of the chris nolan batman movies wants to be taken seriously as kind of highfalutin cinema well these are the kinds of questions that people ask of highfalutin cinema that's fair that's fair and i'm really going to give the dark knight both barrels in just a little while but before we get into that, I mean, you know, I've I've kind of rolled a grenade out there and it seems unfair for me to just instantly change the subject. Uh, do you have anything that you want to retort on that or do you want to move on? No, no. Oh, OK. All right. So uh, but, but now moving right along uh, the Joker and golly, this episode, geez, we're, we're going so slow here. I'm sorry. Um, the Joker also tries to kill Mayor Anthony Garcia, but Gordon sacrifices himself to stop the assassination. Dent learns that Rachel is the next target. Here again, we're basically getting Bruce acting in his civvies because this is taking place really in broad daylight. This is basically the funeral procession for the now deceased Commissioner Loeb. And the Joker basically tries to take a shot at the mayor. But Gordon at least appears to uh, take the bullet upon himself. 
while Batman is just a little too slow to the punch and doesn't really manage to rescue anybody. And this is maybe the first major instance of the Batman being a step or two behind the Joker. And it's going to get worse as this movie goes on. But what becomes clear in this scene is that the Joker is playing three-dimensional chess. And the other characters are stuck playing two-dimensional chess, and they're just not on the same level as the Joker. That much is clear. And this is really the first major instance of this that, that we see in the movie. So uh, before we move I, on... I, do you, hmm? I, I think sometimes it's easy, especially in a movie like this, to, for some reason, equate crazy or insane with dumb. Mm-hmm. But the type of crazy and insane and maniacal that the Joker has demonstrated just within the bounds of the movie up to this point is an extremely calculated, organized type of crazy. Agreed. And sometimes we think that those don't go together, uh, but they certainly can. Hmm. And I, th- I think there's a there's a almost a mathematical, logical component to the Joker's madness or insanity. You know, we think of madness or insanity as manic, uh, flying off the handle. Mm-hmm. But here it's cold and calculated. And you don't see madness portrayed, insanity portrayed that way often. But I think it's more common than than uh, maybe we'd like to admit. And and I do think there's a mathematical aspect, a uh, philosophical, almost intellectual aspect to it that that comes uh, uh, comes to the fore a little bit later in the movie. Agreed. And yeah, and uh, honestly, I mean, I think it becomes, if anything, more and more and more apparent. I mean, there are layers of this, and the Joker starts stacking the layers just right on top of another with yeah as as all of this as all of this goes on um agreed so moving right along the stipulation as as i said earlier was that made by the joker is that batman needs to reveal his identity so to get back into the plot synopsis bruce decides to reveal his secret identity before he can however dent announces that he is batman so dent is taken into protective custody But the Joker appears and attacks the convoy, after which Batman comes to Dent's rescue and Gordon, who it turns out has faked his death, arrests the Joker and is promoted to commissioner for his trouble. Now, I've got a lot to say about this, but I'm going to let you go first. One of the things I liked about this scene, and we started to get it maybe a couple scenes back, is that there are some funny moments. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in a pressure cooker, (laughs) intense uh, situation, you need that. I mean, we, you know, we, uh, you know, we we talk about that uh, that relief or that that, uh, that release that comes, uh, you know, comic relief. Mm-hmm. And I think here we have a couple aspects to it. The, the van that the that the Joker, I guess, or one of his henchmen might be the Joker, is in says laughter is the best medicine, yes. which would be funny enough, except that he spray painted an S in front of it, so it says slaughter is the best medicine. Yes, and there's another point where uh, I guess they're inside the van that's having that that's holding Harvey, and 
they're assured as the, you know gunfire is powering into the into the outside of of the van. You know, don't worry about it. He's going to need something a lot bigger than this. Oh wait, what is that? Is that a bazooka? <laughs> that's bigger. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, that, that, in in the sense of a in the middle of a tense of a tense scene, in what is not being billed as a you know action adventure you know humorous movie. Mm-hmm. There's a couple pretty funny moments there. There's there's one also I can't remember if it's in the scene or later, where a couple of kids are in the back of a car mm-hmm. and they're you know doing their finger you mm-hmm. know finger guns, mm-hmm. and then off in the background you see something explode. You go whoa! <laughs> yeah, what did I do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well. I mentioned a, a second ago that I was going to give The Dark Knight both barrels, and here we are. This is kind of a Swiss cheese moment of the plot here because of the fact that, really for multiple reasons, but Dent announces that he's Batman. And so for that reason, we gather, the Joker tries to kill him. But Batman saves Dent and then Gordon arrests the Joker, after which the Joker tells Batman that he wasn't actually trying to kill Dent, you know, with all of those bullets and rockets and stuff that he was firing at the van, even though he clearly believed that Dent was Batman. He wasn't actually trying to kill him. So go figure on that. But well, I, th- I, th- I think any character or viewer makes a mistake in taking the Joker at his word. Oh, well, fair enough. And that's been pointed at, I mean, that's been hinted at more than once in his multiple origin stories and et cetera. But from there, there comes, we get to something that's a little bit eh, harder to, to deal with in that it turns out that this was all part of the Joker's master plan that he meant to get caught, even though he didn't really seem to position himself to get arrested. And he somehow arranged for his henchmen to kidnap Harvey and Rachel behind everybody's back in spite of apparently believing that Harvey was, in fact, Batman or not. I I mean, it's just the logic of what the Joker is doing. It's apparent in scenes before this. It's apparent in scenes after this. But what he does specifically in this larger sequence of that that begins really with uh, the convoy taking Harvey Dent into custody and ends with the Joker escaping from jail. It's like the logic of all of this and what the Joker is doing. It's like it, I don't mean that his target change. It's like he's, it's like he's aware of things he couldn't possibly be aware of. He's doing things he shouldn't. Yeah. I I think maybe it's less of a problem. Doesn't solve it. Maybe less of a problem. If these are all the backup, the contingency plans, Mm. The I think this is Dent, and I'm going to try to kill him. But if I get caught, then we activate Plan B, okay. or Plan C, or Plan D and E and F that we never get to. That those are in place as well. I see. Okay. As as contingencies. All right. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, I'll, I'll ride with that. Sure. Now that, that doesn't answer every. That doesn't solve every problem or answer every question. No, no, it doesn't. But it it helps, you know, I mean, or if nothing else, I mean, to me, what you need to do is suggest a plausible alternative. And, you know, I think you have now 
the fact is the movie would get bogged down in meaningless nonsense if it takes time to ex- to explain plans A, B, C, D, E, all the way up to J. You know, I mean, that's you talk about dull filmmaking. So you can't show that stuff. So I wouldn't hold it against Nolan if. But, if but wouldn't you have liked one moment, just if one point he picks up a phone and says, OK, cancel the Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and not even not even give context to it. Yeah, just you know, no, no, what that's the it. fuck was he going to even use the Zeppelin for? <laughs> Who cares? You know. <laughs> and then and then because you, you know what would happen on opening night, Trinus uh, Magnus is just going to be sitting there in the, in the audience saying, "No, don't cancel the Zeppelin. I want to see that. <laughs> I want to see that." Well, all right. Anyway, so Rachel and Dent are escorted away by policemen on the mob's payroll. Batman interrogates the Joker, who reveals that Rachel and Dent have been trapped in separate locations rigged with explosives. Batman races to save Rachel, or so he thinks, while Gordon goes to save Dent, or so he thinks. But Batman arrives at the building, realizing that the Joker sent him to Dent's location instead. Both buildings explode, killing Rachel and disfiguring half of Dent's face. The Joker escapes the jail with Lau. So we get into a little bit of the bait and switch moment of the movie where I have to tell you, this really threw me the first time I saw it because Batman announced that he was going after Rachel, but then he arrives at Dent's location and it eventually comes out that, yes, it's actually made explicit in the dialogue. The Joker actually gave us the wrong addresses on purpose and basically the the whichever character and what i assume the joker's thinking here is on this whichever of these two characters you decide to, that you want to save that's actually the one that you're going to lose you're going to fail yeah no matter what and so number 1 you just talk about devious oh my god but then this actually leads to do you want to talk about two-face now or do you want to save that for when two-face actually appears in the narrative yeah, let's let let's save it. Okay, fair enough. All right, so from there, the Joker escapes the jail with Loud. Now, I don't want to make too big a deal out of that, but there is this kind of neat moment where the Joker hangs out a police a stolen police car, and he's just waving his hair around in, you know, in the breeze. And this again is, you can't have an entire movie made up of little moments like this, but sometimes. As a filmmaker, what you can do is work stuff like this into your movie where there's no visuals, there's no music. It's just the character being the character. And we got one earlier in the movie with Batman, as is his want, standing on top of a building surveying his city. And here we get the Joker just being the Joker. And he's acting silly. He's hanging out the window. And it's like the magnitude of all the stuff that he's just done – it's like it doesn't affect him. You know, I mean, of all characters in the movie, he's the one who is truly amoral, you know? And the in- interesting thing is mm-hmm. we have a scene of Batman being Batman and a scene of the Joker being Joker. Which one of them is enjoying themselves more? It's <laughs> the Joker being Joker, and it ain't even close. Yeah. Batman may get some deep down satisfaction of what he's doing, but Joker's having a blast being himself. Yes. And again, that kind of speaks to the fact that the nature of their psychology demands that the Joker is always going to be a step ahead of Batman. To Batman, this is his mission. To Joker, this is fun. 
to Batman, this is all about maintaining order. To the Joker, this is all about breaking the rules. The Joker is inherently more flexible just on a base psychological level. That's why he's always going to be a step ahead of the Batman through every step of this movie. It's because he's the one who's defined. If, if you're the one that sets the rules, what do you want to bet you're the one that's going to win? You know? So it's and, – and one of the things that I kind of like about this is as a filmmaker, Chris Nolan seems to want to err on the side of putting it all into the text. It's like he doesn't – I don't want to go so far as to say he doesn't trust the audience to pick up on this for themselves. He just for some reason prefers to not show so much as tell. And this is one of the few times, you know, this dichotomy that exists between the Batman and the Joker where the Joker is always ahead of the game because he's the one who's defining it. That's not in the text. You Either you see that for yourself or you don't. But he doesn't beat you over the head with, you know, uh, a, a big, long, didactic scene. The Joker is always going to win because he's he, he's the guy who's able to think creatively. You know, you don't get that. And I, I for, I'm not trying to sound elitist or snooty or anything. I just kind of appreciate it. I, I, I was going to make one, one point, one, one distinction between – to me an important distinction mm-hmm. – between begins – and the dark night and that starts with the credits that batman begins is directed by christopher nolan screenplay by christopher nolan and david goyer story by david goyer mm-hmm. uh, the dark knight is directed by christopher nolan screenplay christopher nolan and jonathan nolan yes from a story by goyer and christopher nolan and to i am i'm a pretty big fan of of uh, of Christopher Nolan. I'm a bigger fan of Jonathan Nolan, Jonathan Nolan. And to me, if you have two dials, one labeled David Goyer and one labeled Jonah Nola, mm-hmm. uh, Jonah Nolan, I enjoy the movies where the David Goyer dial is turned down and the Jonah Nolan dial is turned up. <laughs> I think there's some great individual moments of dialogue in here, and I'm giving Jonathan Nolan the credit for that. For the and I, I think just on individual the speeches, a lot of them are the Jokers, but 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 not all of them. Uh, I mean, part of it is you 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 have that great character to work with. Though to be fair, Ra's al Ghul's a pretty great character to work with in terms of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there were opportunities for that in the prior movie uh, as well, but. To me, that that's one of the one of the big differences in the two movies, is the not just the story, not just the the big picture stuff, but the actual the scripting, right? Um, the the actual lines that are being said, and and to me, that's that's a Jonathan Nolan uh, impact that I think that I just don't think he ever gets mentioned with these movies, and and I wanted to. Well, fair enough. I mean, I, to be fair, I wouldn't have necessarily thought to mention him myself. So, yeah, go right ahead, please. And 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 he will come back again in a scene later on. There's a, a few specific Jonathan Nolan isms, but those are coming down the road. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Moving right along with the synopsis here, Coleman Reese, an accountant at Wayne Enterprises, deduces that Bruce is Batman. 
actually, and before we even move on to this next bit, he first he just deduces that Bruce is Batman, and then this is actually earlier in the movie he confronts. Uh, he confronts um, Lucius Fox. Lucius Fox. Thank you. I, I, I could only, for some reason I can only think of Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. Well, because that is just such a quintessential, and that's actually what I wanted to talk about. That is such a quintessential Morgan Freeman in these movies kinds of kind of scenes, because again I don't want to beat this to death, but you know. Bruce had somebody confronted him with that, with that information, and if the, Bruce perceived them to be a threat, it's reasonable to assume that Bruce would have gone physically on the offensive, and that is not what happens <laughs> with Lucius Fox. He pretty much uh, puts uh, Reese in his place with just a few words, and it is such a masterfully acted scene, you know that. You know, there are layers of security around Batman's secret identity, many of which were put in place by Bruce himself. And, you know, I'm guessing they're pretty effective. But my God, man, you talk about an effective. I mean, he just took Coleman Reese's balls away from him, like with just a few words. That was it. it, It's number one. It's great dialogue. Number two, it goes straight to character. And number three, it's just such good acting from both of them, because the guy that actually plays Coleman Reese, you can actually see the moment when the penny drops for him and he realizes how dangerous this game he's playing could possibly be. And it's not just that he thinks he knows who Batman is. He thinks he knows who Batman is. And for 10 million a year for the rest of his life, he'll keep it quiet. That's an important point too. (laughs) Yeah. Not that he's discovered, but he's going to try to take advantage of it. And Lucius says no on both. Both of those thoughts are really bad ideas. But that doesn't hold. And so to get back into the synopsis, Coleman Reese, an accountant at Wayne Enterprises, deduces that Bruce is Batman and tries to go public with the information. After observing the unpredictability of the Joker, Maroney informs the the Joker's – I don't know why it's phrased in this way. Maroney gives the Joker's location to Commissioner Gordon. The Joker sets fire to the mob's money, burning Lau alive in the process, and then kills the Chechen. Then he threatens to destroy a hospital unless someone kills Coleman Reese. Gordon orders the evacuation of all the hospitals in Gotham and goes to secure Reese. Meanwhile, as all that's going on, actually, you know what? That's a lot to talk about just right there. And and I actually think there's one technicality that they missed mm-hmm. or was was overstated was that – the Joker's burning his half of the money. Yes. He's not burning the mob's money. He's burning his own money. And in terms of his psychology, that's an important distinction. Right. And actually, there's uh, oddly enough, the arguably the most pivotal line, the most pivotal scene of the entire movie ended up getting skipped over in the synopsis. But basically, it's the, and, and, and don't worry, it relates to the Joker, directly to what we're talking about. But that moment when Alfred tells Bruce about the bandit in the forest of Rangoon whenever he was working for the government of Burma. And he basically gives this kind of a, it's sort of a long little soliloquy about the type of man that the Joker really is. Targeting me won't get their money back. I knew the mob wouldn't go down without a fight, but this is different. They've crossed the line. You crossed the line first, so you squeezed them, you hammered them to the point of desperation. 
And in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand. Criminals aren't complicated, Alfred. We just need to figure out what he's after. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones. But in six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport, because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Basically, you know, the point of all of that is to say that, you know, up to this point, the, the types of, of perps that Batman has had to deal with have mostly been mobsters. Now, yeah, you had stuff like, you know, Ra's al Ghul in the, or, sorry, I keep saying that, Ra's al Ghul in the last movie. And, you know, yeah, that was a guy that was, dedi- he, he, in, in his own way, he was as dedicated to his ideals as Bruce is to, to his own. And that's fine. But he nevertheless had relatable motivations. You know, you can that that's a nut that you can crack. No question. Alfred's point is that this is a guy who's motivated by philosophies and values you don't know a damn thing about. And treating him as though he's just another conventional mobster in this city is the sure path to defeat. And his methods are going to defy logic because he's not motivated by logic. He's not motivated by reason. You know, ultimately what he wants is chaos. And the movie is a, it's a little more articulate than I just made it out to be. But basically what, the, what, what Alfred is saying is that you're not thinking of this in, in the right terms. You know, he's not going to play the game in a way that, that is going to be sensible or logical to you. And as long as you fail to see things the same way he does, you're never going to be able to, to keep track. And so it, it's an incredibly powerful and I think really well written and really well acted moment of the movie. I would say this is probably, the, as far as the Joker's participation, the most pivotal scene of the whole movie. So to tie it all back to the burning of the Joker's half of the money. His point is to, in doing all of that is to demonstrate that for him, it's not about money. It's not about, uh, getting rich and getting that one big score. And then you get to retire. You know, this is just the first step. And basically, uh, this opera of chaos that he wants to unleash upon the entire city. And that's done on, the macro level with trying to shoot mayors and, and assassinate judges and do stuff like that. But it's also done on the micro level of if burning his half of the money is going to piss the Chechen off, then guess what the Joker is going to do? It's worth it. Yeah. And 
you know, in terms how accurate it really is to call this character the Joker, considering the way he's portrayed in comics, I think that's up for grabs in, in terms of personality. But in terms of some of his methods and some of his rationale, I could see the Joker in the comics doing something like this. I mean, to him, m- money, it's not a way... It's not really about wealth. It's not even a way of keeping score. I think the Joker in the comics would view it as he needs money in order to buy stuff. But money is a means. It's not an end. Right. And but it's, it, to me, it's funny that you should mention that because up to this scene, just in rewatching this recently, I was thinking that this idea of the Joker's sort of mega plot, meta plot of consolidating the mobs. That that's penguin shtick, and for a little while, you know, again on the on the rewatch, I'm thinking, I no, this guy isn't as much the Joker as he's sort of a penguin character, and I never, you know, had thought that, and it's probably because of this scene. At this scene, you say, ah, okay, it's not about a traditional taking over the mob plan, mm-hmm. you know, that master criminals or supervillains will 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 often have. This is about a philosophy, and again. If we're we've used you know the the language already of the Joker as terrorist, yes, a lack of understanding of the enemy's ideology will doom the campaign to failure. And one of the it, we're really shifting around here, but one of the things that came out of that there's a sort of an epilogue to that scene in, I guess, the Batman bunker, where Bruce later asks Alfred, how is it that you caught the bandit? I mean, what did you have to do in order to make this happen? And Alfred said, we caught him because we burned the forest down. And instantly, like, as as a viewer, what you're supposed to think is, holy shit, you know, I mean, if... I, if you have to figure that if the Burma bandit is basically supposed to be Alfred's Joker, and this is the only thing Alfred could think of to to get the guy, number one, I mean, Alfred's obviously badass supreme in his own right, but number two, what will Bruce have to do to take down the Joker? And are those the stakes that he's playing for? Is he going to have to literally burn down the city in order to get one man? And there's a degree to which that it ends up not being literal, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but yeah, there's a, a sense in which, yeah, Batman does have to burn down the city in order to get the Joker. And we'll come to that when we come to that. But it's important that, you know, I guess my listeners have their thinking caps on whenever they whenever they hear that stuff and they understand what exactly the stakes are that everybody's playing for here now. It's not just about, you know, the mob getting ahead and then the cops get ahead and then the mob gets ahead again. I mean, all of a sudden this... This has become existential for everybody involved in this scene, and they all know it now. And I'm perhaps overthinking this. So moving right along, uh, to get back into the synopsis, the Joker finds Harvey Dent in a hospital and, and manipulates him into seeking revenge for Rachel's death. The Joker destroys the hospital, and that's a neat little scene in its own right, by the way, but we got to get going here. The Joker destroys the hospital and escapes with a busload of passengers, or sorry, a busload of hostages. Dent then goes on a killing spree based on a coin flip, targeting people he holds personally responsible for Rachel's death. This includes two uh, corrupt police detectives, that is to say Wurtz and Ramirez, 
who worked for Mar- secretly worked for Maroney in kidnapping Dent and Rachel. While in the car with Maroney, Dent kills Maroney's driver, which could feasibly have killed Maroney as well, but that perhaps is getting ahead of things a bit. Is this a good place to, to, to park it for a sec? Do you have anything you want to throw in here? Um, you know, uh, other, other than, again, the exploding the hospital was a pretty cool scene. Um, and, you know, the Joker has announced that the city is his. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did want to you – know, one of the one of the aspects of this is that um, the key about blowing up the hospital is that um, that this guy, Reese, the deal is if if he is alive, 60 minutes later, he'll blow up the hospital. And yes. sort of on the idea of maybe turning, you know, Gotham City's residents against themselves. Yeah. And uh, I was looking, and, and I was looking at that, and I was thinking. Except the, you know, the problem is you can't trust the Joker. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking, what would Mister Spock do? Right, needs of the many outweighs the needs of the few, or the need of the one. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a. If it, if the Joker were an honest partner, you could make the argument uh, that the the right thing to do is to kill the guy if that's really going to make the Joker go away, right? Of course, we sort of know it won't. But right. That was the first thought I had is, you know, movies have have asked this question before. And the, and the answer has always been it's for the one person to sacrifice themselves. Right. This one takes a little different uh, different spin on it in that that death would not be voluntary. No, it wouldn't. And I mean, it's hard to know what Spock would think, but – Part of me has to wonder, yeah, the needs of the many must necessarily outweigh the needs of the few, but the needs of the many depend upon having a stable, functional society. And there's a very strong argument that you can't have that if you're willing to negotiate with terrorists and kill your own people at their whim, you know? And so uh, it's all in how you look at it, I guess. But one of the things that works for me about this entire sequence, I mean, this is one of the best sequences of the whole movie. Reason being is because you've got Bruce, again, he's acting, I guess, in the office of Batman, if not necessarily the identity of Batman, and and trying to ride herd on all of this craziness that's unfolding all around him. And this, to me, this sequence where, you know, goings on with Reese, goings on with the hospital... And Bruce zipping around trying to salvage the best from, let's face it, a really horrible situation. This is the Joker at his best. I don't care if it's a comic. I don't care if it's an animated series or feature film. Something like this is what needs to happen. I, because like the Joker's, he's almost made a religion out of chaos. And, and that gets played out in this movie. I mean... This is my favorite example of it. The Joker is able to send the city into an absolute friggin' panic just with one phone call and the hysteria of it all, you know, the pandemonium of it all. You know, after after, uh, you know, after that, you, you see the hospital getting evacuated. And this may actually be my single favorite just moment in the movie of people clearing out the hospital. People are running around and they're in a virtual they're almost out of their minds with panic. And the Joker on the one hand, he's nowhere to be seen in that specific moment of the movie. 
not yet. But his presence never goes away. He's there in every frame, even if he's not really visible. And, you know, we may be going a little bit out of sequence of everything else here, but, you know, one of the things I kind of like about this movie is the way that the music is used. And I guess to kind of make an analogy, when, when Steven Spielberg did Jaws, he used the shark theme very carefully. There are no musical fake-outs in Jaws. When the shark is lurking nearby, the shark theme plays. When the shark theme plays, the shark is lurking nearby. Yes. The two are one. And the same thing happens with the Joker theme here in The Dark Knight, in that if the Joker's nearby, you hear his music. If you hear his music, he's nearby. And as with the shark, the, the two are never separated from each other. And it's it's really used very powerfully in this movie, I think. So, anyway, uh, this was supposed to be a brief tangent. We've turned it into uh, <laughs> ten minutes. I'm, I, I really am sorry. I'm not doing this on purpose, I promise. So, um, the Joker, just to kind of move along with the synopsis, the Joker rigs two ferries with explosives, which is to say boats, like ferry boats. I don't mean like Tinkerbell. The Joker rigs two ferries with explosives, one containing civilians and the other containing prisoners. He says that he's going uh, to that he's going to blow both of them up by midnight, but he'll let one of them live if the passengers of any one blow up the other. From there, Batman finds the Joker with a sonar device that spies on the entire city with the reluctant help of Lucius Fox. The passengers refuse to kill each other, and Batman apprehends the Joker after a fight. Before the police arrive to take the Joker into custody, he gloats that Gotham City's citizens will lose hope once Dent's rampage becomes public knowledge. And I think that's a good place to kind of put a thumbtack uh, into this thing. This is when we get a little bit of what I think is kind of a mixed message with this movie. Because we were talking just a minute ago about how the needs of the many have to outweigh the needs of the few. And what we saw in the Coleman Reese scene is that at least some people in Gotham City were ready, willing, able, and eager to uh, take shots at the Joker in order to save whoever it is that they know who's in the hospital. So on the one hand, there's a little bit of a fatalistic kind of hopeless message there that the people of Gotham City are turning on each other and they're willing to kill their own in order to uh, uh, save, in this case, a hospital. But later, the fairy scene shows us that both civilians and felons refuse to kill one another. So my question to you, and there's no right answer to this, this is just opinion. My question to you is, is this contradictory on Nolan's part? And before you answer that, consider this. The movie ends with Batman taking the fall for all of Harvey's murders, as well as the murder of Harvey himself. And we can talk about that in more depth when we get there. But if the people of Gotham are as virtuous as Batman believes, is it possible that they'd look beyond Dent's tragedy and his mayhem and decide to finish his work on an honest basis as opposed to that conspiracy that Batman concocts with Gordon. So I, I've given you a lot there, and I'm sorry, but uh, you've got the floor. Yeah, I, I wonder if I wonder if there's some trust, some hope 
but Batman would have to be a hundred percent certain. Yeah. Um, that the even with a hospital or with a ferry, we're talking now the whole city, and maybe the stakes are just too high that you have to be a hundred percent certain. Is one hundred percent certainty possible? Or as close as possible. Okay. To it, perhaps. Um, but a couple things about this scene on the, the ferries, that, that concept that I like. Again, here, and, and it's the Joker doing it, but it's the Nolans doing it as well. So you sort of, there's always a, you know, uh, is this something that they wanted to do? Or is this something that they wanted the Joker, you know, they had to, to have the Joker do? You sort of, Never know where that where that comes from, but right. I like this concept that, again, the Joker here is using a mathematical construct that comes out of game theory, mm-hmm. the prisoner's dilemma, the idea of will people betray each other, uh, that the, that that the best possible outcome is for people to trust each other and not betray each other. That's the best total outcome, although the best outcome for yourself may be to betray. Right. And that does sound like a like a uh, like a question the Joker would like to know the answer to. But it's also kind of a sophisticated one. So again, I don't know if that's you know, how much of that is the Nolans wanted to put that into their movie? Mm-hmm. Or how much they thought it was cool that the Joker was doing that? And then there's a of a similar notion that the idea that this sort of construct of the of the prisoner's dilemma is mm-hmm. being applied in this movie with actual prisoners. <laughs> that, I th- I think that might be the writers, <laughs> you know, adding a little. A little joke to it, I think. I, when well, I sort of figured that out, I thought that was pretty funny. Well, the reason uh, I could be wrong, but the reason I thought they kind of twisted it a little bit by making one group apparently innocent civilians and the other group apparently guilty felons is to kind of introduce a, a, a sort of a false moral dilemma. Uh, into the uh, equation, basically, it's it it's designed to be a rhetorical trap, and that are you less a murderer now because the because you blew up uh, people who are convicted felons? That means you're not a murderer now. And to me, the the point of that type of a dilemma is to say that murder is murder is murder. It doesn't matter if they're wearing a white collar. Or if they're wearing uh, a prison jumpsuit, they're still human, and you just snuffed out their lives. That's by any definition, it's murder. It doesn't matter what kind of clothes they're wearing or what they've done in life. And I thought it was very clever. The only, like, literally, the only reason that I am not giving that sequence both barrels is because of the fact that it's a little bit of a trick question. You know, it's not if it was two fairies full of innocent civilians. It's it, it for some reason it's like the morality of it kind of speaks for itself, but whenever you throw a little bit of camouflage onto it, you know that the felons don't certainly of all people don't have the right to kill anybody else. They have they've killed enough innocent civilians as it is. 
but the innocent civilians they don't have they don't have the right to take life in that way you know it, the the felons are not the ones who are who've put them in this possession uh, this position of do or die you know it's not their fault you know and introducing that one little moral complication it's not exactly reinventing the wheel but it does add an extra spoke to the wheel now where you know you can kind of i look i you know me and you know where i'm coming from on most things and any any time you can clarify on questions of morality with sort of rhetorical traps like that you know i'm all over it cuz it cuz it does kind of provide kind of interesting food for philosophy if nothing else so i don't know if it's riveting podcasting but it's and and what i like about this is that the joker is taking this 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 philosophical debate or this thought experiment, and actually doing it in real life. Yes, it's. I think of you know superficially, it may not seem like it's all that clever, but all of the ins and outs, the timer, the fact that both of those things are going off at midnight, and the fact that one of those fairies is full of convicts and the other one's full of civilians, the moral complications that are playing out there. You know, I think – I'm not saying you should, but I think you at least could make a movie just out of that, you know? So – and that's not the only time we're going to say there's another movie in here, but we'll come to that when we come to that. So to get back into the synopsis – actually, hold on. No, before we get back into the synopsis, there's um, a little bit of a political issue here, and if you don't want to touch yes. it, I, yeah, I let, understand. Let, let's talk about the surveillance. Yeah. Basically, as I watched this movie, and I'm not the only one who got this message, I watched this movie, and the first time that uh, – let's just call it what it is, Brother Eye, this massive sonar surveillance project of uh, that Bruce Wayne basically took is – it basically allows him to spy literally on the entire city. So there's a sense in which, as I said earlier, he's burning down all of Gotham City to find one man. It's not literal as it was with Alfred, but he's still burning the thing down. You know, there are firewalls of of civil rights, due process, right to privacy. I mean, the list just friggin' goes on that Batman is basically trampling in the name of a higher good. And so the first thing that anyone, I think, hearing this in 2008 is going to think about was, you know, is the allegations of the uh, – President Bush administration's domestic surveillance operation and maybe elements of the Patriot Act and basically how that played out in American life. But the twist on all of this is that Batman entrusts this absolute power to somebody who is apparently absolutely incorruptible. It works the way it's supposed to work. There is no blowback to it. There are no complications to it. And when it's all over, they turn it off and they never turn it back on. It is literally the golden goose promise that every politician makes whenever he <laughs> is seizing power. And except in their case, it really does come true. And some people have interpreted quite a lot from that, justified or not, mm-hmm. as concerns Chris Nolan's own personal political ideology. Now, if you don't want to go into that, no, I well, totally I'm, understand. I'm, but I'm, the, I'm, I am going to turn it a little bit different direction. Go for and it. And that is, you said that, and they turned off the 
the the device and it never came back on again. Yes. Except that five years later, Jonathan Nolan turned it back on again. Oh. In his TV show, Person of Interest. Ah. Which is all about the surveillance state, good and bad, and artificial intelligence. And and, and which he created, uh, wrote the pilot, the first few episodes, or wrote a half dozen of the other episodes of the entire series. Mm-hmm. And so was involved in it from beginning to end. And again, that is all about the problems of the surveillance state and the issue of whether you can trust the machine itself to work, whether you can trust people with legitimately good intentions with that type of power. So that's why, again, when I rewatched the movie in the context of knowing what would come later in Jonathan Nolan's career, mm-hmm. that this is obviously something that he had not gotten out of his system as a writer uh, through uh, The Dark Knight. He was not done with the topic. I see. Well, like I say, the this was a source of controversy. Now – not as controversial as some of the stuff that we that we're going to see when when we get into the Dark Knight Rises, but this was a source of considerable controversy online, and that people were asking in the political parlance of that time: Is Christopher Nolan, I, uh, for lack of a better expression, a Bush supporter or sympathizer or what? And stuff like that, guys. It's way it, too hot. Is, a, hmm? Yeah, I mean, the question is, was he defending that, that type of surveillance? Was he was he defending it, or was he pointing out the – because in a sense, both sides of that equation are are dealt with. Right. You know, in the, in the, in the, in, in the character of the most moral, uncorruptible person is saying, this is a bad idea. Right. So you do have, to some extent, you you know, both sides of the argument are presented in the movie, and 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 that's that is worth pointing out. Right. And you know, whatever whatever beliefs Chris Nolan has, those are his to deal with, or not deal with, or whatever. It's way too hot a potato for me to get into in this yeah. podcast. It's not my business, really, but. You know, a lot of I, I, it almost feels like I'm not doing my job if I don't at least mention the fact that this was a source of controversy. But taking a decisive stand on that, guys, I'm not going anywhere near that. You know, so now one final note is the this is like up to this point in the movie. Batman has mostly spoken in very declamatory, very brief, very halting uh, types of statements, you know, oh, where is he, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, he hasn't really had, I guess, philosophical debates with people using his Batman voice. That changes in this scene, and what you find is that, on the one hand, yes, Batman, he has to have a Batman voice. I mean, at this point, you know, post Michael Keaton, post Kevin Conroy. 
arguably even post Ben Affleck, Batman must have a voice different from Bruce Wayne. But the dark side to that is what I guess I'd never really considered. It comes when you realize that there are certain things that Batman cannot say. You know, there are certain conversations Batman can't enter into. If he's going to have a certain type of voice, then he you have to it's almost like you have to restrict his vocabulary to certain subjects. Bruce Wayne can talk about anything. Batman you have to kind of limit him a little bit more or else what you get is a scene where Christian Bale sounds like he's got well, I don't want to make fun of people suffering, but it it just sounds kind of silly when Batman says words to the effect of this city just showed you that how moral and virtuous and pure blah, blah, blah. And it just falls flat in a dramatic sense because of the fact that let's face it, this is a silly voice to use for carrying on a conversation, you know? Yeah. So I don't know, whatever. Um, we're getting into a little bit the denouement of the film here where Gordon arrives at the, at the building where Rachel died, where Dent, judges his fate along with his own and Batman's by way of flipping a coin. He spares himself, shoots Batman, tries to kill Gordon's uh, and, and tries to kill Gordon's son. Batman, who was wearing body armor, tackles Dent off the building where Dent plummets to his death. Batman persuades Gordon to preserve Dent's heroic image by holding Batman responsible for Dent's own killing spree. As the police launch a manhunt for Batman, Gordon destroys the bat signal. Fox watches as the sonar device self-destructs, like you were saying a while ago. And Alfred Pennyworth burns a letter from Rachel about her choice to marry Dent. The end. We oh. skipped over, or we, we put off the discussion of Two-Face in general. Mm -hmm. So let's do that before we get to the wrap-up of the plot itself. Absolutely. Um, honestly, I've... I, I, I'm actually kind of curious to hear what you have to say first. So if you wouldn't mind uh, taking the lead on that. In, in general, I'm not a fan of Two-Face. Um, I think the shtick is, uh, gets weary after a while. Mm -hmm. But I did like how it was done here. Uh, I thought there was some subtlety again in the writing that Harry had – that Harvey – come out of internal affairs in the the cop investigating other cops in other words or the mm -hmm. lawyers investigating cops mm -hmm. and so he's distrusted and hated and he is called two-face yes he 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 is a, a a betrayer of his fellow law enforcement uh, a team um, and I also liked the idea that his eventual you know, turn, the madness, whatever takes him over, is tied to that idea of him being in one place and Rachel being in one place. In other words, a 50-50 choice. That a 50-50 choice was made that – and that 50-50 choice left her dead and him scarred. And that seems like – a reasonable place to go for a short-term type of madness. Mm -hmm. You know, again, un, I, I, 
that's why I do think Two Face can sometimes fail as a long term character. Mm-hmm. That again, the the shtick can get old, but I kind of like that he's still in the height of the. I mean, the very small amount of time has passed in this movie. So yes. he's sort of to me to me still in the in the throes of of the emotional turmoil that has taken place. And so relying on the on the lucky coin and so on. And and he he does specifically have to say it. You know, my life was changed on a 50-50 proposition, so I'm going to change everyone else's on a 50-50 proposition. You know, if there had been a way to be more subtle about that, it probably would have been better, but two and a half hours into the movie already Mm -hmm. before the the secondary villain doesn't get as much of that, so he does have to uh, hang a lantern on it. Uh, But I thought that helped. Fair enough. That that there's sort of the... That that Two-Face exists for a short period of time. Well, my... As I, you, as I'm sure you probably know, one of the most oft-stated criticisms of the Dark Knight is, if you think about it from the from the standpoint of plot and pacing, there's really too much going on in this movie, and certain things might have been better left to the third movie, but. This is one of those occasions when, on the one hand, I can understand that criticism, even agree with it on some level, but it was important for purposes of theme and I would say just the Joker's general purpose in this movie that Harvey Dent is introduced. He's played up as Gotham's White Knight. He suffers his fall, he becomes Two-Face, and then, and this is crucial, he has to die. And all of those things have to happen in this movie. Not to benefit Two-Face, necessarily, but to benefit the narrative, to benefit the themes, and to benefit the Joker. And one can't really crawl inside of a filmmaker's mind and say, this is what so-and-so was going for, but what I think Nolan wanted to do was resolve all of this in a way that was Joker friendly in a way that was Batman friendly. And if that came at the, uh, at the expense, not so much of Harvey, but if that came at the expense of two face, it was a trade off he was willing to make because this isn't something that wouldn't easily carry over to a new film from a thematic standpoint. Now from a plot standpoint, yeah, it would, but not from a thematic standpoint. The, the consequences have got to be felt, and they've got to be felt here. And so that, I think, is why it played out the way that it did. Now, one of the things that – I'm not saying this to be critical or, God, or, 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 again, sound snooty or dismissive or sarcastic or anything, but one of the things that commenters on the internet, I don't think they necessarily understand, is – resolution and they understand that they understand or at least think they understand the idea of pacing and you know picking your moment for certain things you don't want to give away the store and all in one movie because then where do you go 
And you know what? They may even be right. Who's to say? But in terms of resolution, which is, to me, when all of the chickens have come home to roost, all of the uh, all of the themes and character dynamics, when credits roll for this movie, something, someone needs to have lost and somebody needs to have won. And if you have to wait until the next movie to figure out who won and who lost, I mean... There's a way to do that effectively, and it seems obvious, at least to me, Nolan didn't want to do it that way. He wanted whatever it cost for Gordon and Batman to save Gotham City here in the Dark Knight. The At least the initial cost, <clears throat> the price they have to pay for that is Harvey, and that has to be felt here. And I, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find and, a way. That, you know, and, and. To some extent, as we said, if we take the grand sweep of a trilogy, the second part of it has to end on down notes. Yes. And maybe not just one down note. So multiple down notes are in place here. And I do think that they, as you said, integrated the story well in terms of the themes, in terms of – and. And I think there's something about Gotham that that works with this because maybe it's worse to be down and defeated and then to have a sense of hope and then have that taken away. Yes. You know, and in a sense, the city goes through an arc in this mm, movie. Yeah. No, from I... down to hopeful to down, maybe even deeper despair than it was at the start of the movie. <clears throat> Agreed. And 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 and, and there, there's something about snatching that hope away, and again having to do it within the con within the context of the same the same piece makes sense. I agree, and I thought it was a very clever and very powerful way to end the story. Now, guys, just truth in advertising. I'm a Two-Face fanboy from way back, you know, and <laughs> honestly, I'm probably going to do a show about it at some point, but it really goes back to Batman annual number 14, which I read when I was nine years old and it blew my friggin' mind off. Like just in terms of what exactly, you know, who Two-Face is. You know, and I guess basically what what his what his deal is, you know, and it it showed a depth and a sophistication that my nine year old imagination never even thought was possible. All right. So I'm not saying that Two-Face is my favorite, but I am saying that, you know, he's a character that's meant a lot to me over the years. And so there's the frustrated fanboy in me that wanted to see every last nuance of Batman annual number 14 played out writ large in this sort of crime drama, Greek tragedy thriller movie that, that you and I've been talking about. I wanted to see every last dramatic bit of that on screen. And guys, the simple reality is that was not the movie that Chris Nolan set out to make. So I can either criticize this movie for something for being something that it's not and never intended to be, 
or I can criticize this movie based on what it is. And so I've chosen what I hope is the more constructive route of bypassing the kind of fan outrage over this. I'm not saying that fans are wrong to feel that way. I'm just saying that one must make decisions with making a film and the sacrifices and the decisions that Nolan was prepared to make obviously included maybe not getting the full dramatic potential that Two-Face has to offer. And in the process, maybe having a movie that in terms of narrative is a bit overcrowded, but in terms of theme, it introduces, develops, and resolves all in one go, which, strictly speaking, is what a film is supposed to do. It's kind of hard for me to be too critical of the guy, I guess, in relation to all of that. You know, over and against everything else that this movie has going for it, some of which obviously I like, some of which obviously I kind of have problems with. But, you know, I guess in terms of the big picture, so to speak, I think he made the right decisions in terms of what this movie needs to be. So I, uh, I, I know a guy who's a huge Riddler fan. Oh, I'm so he, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he dreads the Riddler showing up in live action for realizing that it probably won't meet his expectations or what he wants out of it. And there's something to be said for his self-awareness about that, that, uh, that, uh, he's, he's, he's almost resigned himself to, he'd rather not see the Riddler on the big screen than see him in a way he doesn't like or appreciate or that fails his personal expectations and is smart enough to understand that his personal expectations are really not a productive long-term basis for judging films or other works of art. Hmm. So I think, uh, I, I, I think uh, Magnus is wise in this, in this approach. Well, I hope so. Now I've got, uh, just a couple of other odds and ends here. But before I get into those, do you have any uh, parting shots uh, from your notes? Anything that we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, well, no, except for a a conclusion. Uh, if we're if if we're uh, not quite at that point yet. Um, no, this is basically that, that's really all I have. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll go ahead and give you uh, my little odds and ends here, and then we can get into conclusions and final thoughts. But. Um, just some stuff that I kind of missed in my notes with each new Batman movie that comes along. It's almost like Batman is operating in a vacuum, you know, like there's, there've been no improvements at all. You know, he's perpetually behind the eight ball, but in the dark night, whether you love it or hate it, what we see very clearly and very early on is that Batman is making progress Criminals are running scared. The mob's banking interests are getting decimated, independent of the Joker. Drug dealers are practically impossible to find anymore. And slowly but surely, things are legitimately improving in Gotham City. He's making headway. And again, it just it shows me that the Nolans kind of had their thinking caps on in terms of, you know, 
what exactly does this sequel have to be, you know? And I think it was very clever of them to run with an I run with this idea of uh, Batman actually being <laughs> successful. And I think it played out really well. So there's that. Um, next, and I guess kind of related to that in terms of um, how Batman begins ended, Gordon promised Batman that there's going to be at, uh, escalation. Batman begins and uh, begins ended with Gordon warning Batman about escalation. He said that criminals in the city would eventually arise to challenge Batman because he represents the new status quo of things in Gotham City. And that gets played out on many levels, not least of which is Batman himself having to upgrade his suit in order to continue uh, to continue being able to do his job. So there's a visual component to this, but on the more psychological level, what Batman had to understand is that the challenges that he faces in protecting the city, they're not just gangsters in pinstripe suits carrying Tommy guns. You know, there are people out there, and I speak here of the Joker, who aren't necessarily motivated by, by, by greed or by power or by any of the... I guess, more rational metrics that Batman understands. There are people out there, there are forces of evil that are so malignant, they're so malevolent, that a conventional approach of going out there and throwing batarangs at him might not be effective. And it was a warning in Batman Begins, but it it comes off here looking like a, almost like a prophecy. And I think it, it without... Again, without overly literalizing it, they, the Nolans, I think, did a, a very good job of following through on that promise. And then, finally, we've talked a great deal about Heath Ledger, but it needs to be said that after Heath Ledger was first cast as the Joker, I think it'd be fair to say, and Professor, if you've got different views on this, please do speak up, but I think it'd be fair to say that to start with, he had very few admirers. The, the first teaser where we only where all, all you really hear is basically dialogue from the movie and then the exploding bat symbol. That's where it changed. And what we're seeing here is basically, in my opinion, a complete reinvention of the Joker. And I think the reason for that is because Nolan obviously didn't want to didn't want his version of the Joker to be readily compared to to Jack Nicholson. And so what he did was he crafted a totally new and unique take on the character. And so my question to you, we kind of talked a bit about this before, but my question for you is to what extent can this character played by Heath Ledger accurately be called the Joker? Um, well, I think, again, in terms of the themes – hits some Joker themes pretty strongly mm -hmm. in terms of chaos and, and anarchy and to some extent maybe being a truer opposite number of the Batman mm -hmm. and being, technically speaking, not a costumed villain, but really darn close. Right. To, I think as, you know, as close as we're going to get in this movie-verse. And so I, I have no problem uh, referring to that character as the Joker. Fair enough. 
Well, the uh, I guess the my reluctance with with this character, it's one of the things that that, that kind of struck me, and this was a very interesting compliment for the for the Nolan fans to pay the Joker is the similarities, real or perceived, between the Heath Ledger performance of this character as compared to the Joker as he's presented in Batman number one. And yes. the the talking point, at least at that time, was the that Nolan wisely went back to Batman number one rather than uh, going with something that's a bit more recent. Because in the bat in Batman number one, one of the things that we see the Joker do is take on the mob. So there is a I guess a literary connection there. But the 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 reason that kind of struck me as Surprising is the fact that these same people, and I was on, I, I was a member of Batman on Film, the Batman on Film forum at the time that The Dark Knight came out. So I'm, I'd like to think that that was pretty much the hub of Nolan Batman fandom online to be found anywhere. I mean, it, they can't, as far as I know, they came no higher than Batman on Film. And those same people excoriated Tim Burton. I mean, all but burned him in effigy for adapting a Batman that I think is most similar to his Golden Age incarnation, where you would have guns mounted on, like big machine guns mounted on the Batplane. You would have uh, Batman at times taking life, uh, human life. And all of these sorts of things. It seemed odd to them that it, to me that it was illegitimate in their minds. These Nolan fans, it was illegitimate in their minds that Tim Burton adapt the Golden Age Batman, but it's completely legitimate for Chris Nolan to adapt the Golden Age Joker. And that just struck me as, as that's just a really weird position to have. I, I to this day I can't really get my head around it. And there's probably no rational explanation but i just want to throw that out there so you know, so, you know my answer my my you know my response to not having a problem calling this the joker probably part of that is that i i was gonna say few characters maybe maybe no characters um, but maybe a handful of pretty obscure ones would fit in the criteria of I have my fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, 75 years of Superman, 75 years of Batman, 75 years of Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. And they ain't been the same. No. <laughs> so to say that that's not Batman or that's not Superman or that's not whoever it is. Well, if that's your definition, then most of Superman is not Superman. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Most of the published, if you have a vision of who your comic book of Superman is, a particular era, a particular creator, then the vast majority of it falls outside of that. And so to me, that just seemed, I mean, maybe that's my, my emotional distance you know, that I that I have as a fan, um, for, for, for better or worse, that I don't get that, I would say, hung up, you could say, emotionally invested 
in 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 characters to that extent that you know there 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 are versions of Batman that resemble this one. There are versions of the Joker that resemble this one, and to some extent, maybe even if there weren't, but they hit broadly speaking key elements. Then 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 that's enough for me. Okay. And I and I I know among geeks, those standards are really really low. <laughs> I, I know that 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 puts me out in the on the fringes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, originally this was this was actually where I planned to kind of wrap things up, but actually this this actually did bring to mind just one other question, and then I promise I'll let you go. I swear. But um. You're saying that to the listeners, right? Okay, I understand. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the problems that I at least have had, just on a personal level, for the past, I would say, several years, is... I, I can't really think of a better way to put it than to say Joker fatigue. You know, I've kind of had my fill of the Joker. I mean... There was a point when everybody was everybody was losing their minds online about death of the family from like 2013 or 2014 or something like that. It was published around there. And so I thought, well, if this story is everything that people are saying, I'll go ahead and check it out. And no, whatever value other people see in that story, maybe the most polite way to say it is I don't see that same value. I just... I'm at a point in my fandom when I'm sort of done with the Joker, so I guess, and again, this is totally opinion, there's really not a a right answer to this, but to what degree, in your opinion, is Joker fatigue responsible for at least some of the backlash that this Joker received? I mean, there's a sense in which, yes, this was a critically acclaimed performance, it was an Oscar-winning performance. And people obviously cherished it, but there's still a vocal contingent of people out there that had problems with this Joker. So, is in your opinion, is Joker fatigue perhaps playing a role in all of this? I'm gonna I'm gonna answer a different question. Sure, but a similar one. And I, sometimes us geeks even though we're in the process of seemingly inheriting the earth. Uh, there's something about us that still wants to be on the outside. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the backlash, to, to the extent that there is one, I think it's, I think it's a vocal minority. And I think I would emphasize both halves of that. I think it's vocal, and I think it's a, it's a minority. Mm-hmm. I think it's a small minority. Um... I think part of the backlash is how much normies love this movie. Mm. It's the it's the fourth highest ranked movie of all time on IMDb. It is it was the number one box office movie of 2008. For a while there, this was the only movie, only superhero movie to hit a billion dollars worldwide. Yeah. yeah. It um, in terms of uh, the much derided Rotten Tomatoes between critics viewers and top critics it's over 90% among all those 
all, all three of those groups that Rotten Tomatoes uses. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something about it being too mainstream that some people, I don't think consciously and I don't think you know, purposefully, but there might be some idea of this is mine, this is not yours. And if those people, the people that made fun of me all my life, love this, there must be something wrong with it. <laughs> okay. That and and in my case, in terms of you know how much you know I I like this movie, you know uh, clearly I am not being paid off by Disney. And you know Disney's welcome to change that. <laughs> gladly, no. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, that basically is really what I had to say uh, about it for, I, or, I don't know about forever, but certainly for right now and for the foreseeable future. So now uh, before you and I uh, call it a day, I've got two questions. First up, do you have literally anything at all? Is there anything yeah, else yeah, about one, this movie? One sort of final capper sure. is that uh, very uh, recently a podcast and, and blog that I'm a fan of recently did a Sort of listener-generated best movie list. This is a movie, movie-based uh, podcast and blog. So I put together my list of 20 best movies of all time. Mm -hmm. And of course, it had some of the geek movies that you would expect: Raiders and Star Wars and the Two Towers, blockbusters like Jaws or whatever, and some classics: the Casablanca, and Psycho, and Metropolis. But this was the only comic book movie mm. on my list of top 20 not just again top 20 movies of all time this made my list and no other superhero movie uh, did hmm. and I don't know if I, I sort of lay my cards on the table as that that's how highly I think of this movie. and there have been a lot of superhero movies that I like but none of them have stood out to me a few close could have been top 30 maybe as legitimately great movies. And again, in the sense that Psycho or Lawrence of Arabia are legitimately great movies. Except this one. You know, this is the one. Now, again, in, in full disclosure, I also put Memento on that list. Yeah, that's a really which, good one. Which, again, is Christopher Nolan directing a script by his brother. Or at least a, a, based on a story by his brother. So there's something about the, the, the Nolan's together that I'm a fan of. <laughs> and his, his, his writing, Jonathan or uh, Jonah Nolan, his writing, I'm an apologetic, fan, unapologetic fan of. Fair enough. Well, in that case, uh, the second question I had was, uh, would you mind telling the listeners where it is that they can find you? I sort of mentioned it at the beginning, but it needs to be repeated. It's been over three hours now. <laughs> And the way some people listen to podcasts, that that, that could have been a week ago. Right. That, um, how, how often you hit the pause button. Well, actually, we're uh, nearly three hours, not quite. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, most of my podcasting is done through the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And that's comic book stuff like my Quarterbin podcast and the show I do with Emily. The short box showcase which is awesome by the way thank you and then in uh 
late 2015, she and I started a side project called Dorkness to Light, which uh, very specifically tackles at least one of the topics that uh, you're not supposed to talk about in the Light Company. <laughs> oh, the Great or, Pumpkin. Exactly. It is. It, it is the top. It, it, it's the show where we look at the specifically religious and theological or spiritual topics that are all over geek properties if you look for them a little bit and that is at darkness to light darkness to light.blogspot.com awesome well look i just want to thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, join in with me uh, once again dude another episode another home run and you've really you've really taken this this whole series but especially this specific episode you've really taken it to the next level and i i just want you to know that i i appreciate your time i appreciate your friendship oh thank you glad to do it <laughs> and glad to have you so that i think is pretty much it for me this week now as to next week what i'm going to be talking about is harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban after which the week after that i'm going to be rejoined by professor allen himself so that we can finish off this trilogy by talking about the dark night rises but that's all in the next two weeks as for right now as i say that's pretty much it for me this week so bye everybody i will see you next week cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase but then again may have, about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultraman of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession 
is The Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find a home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook just by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-m-a-g-n-u-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com If you have a suggestion for a topic, feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. 
The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>